0: One two yeah, we've made a penny for your thoughts might elect his birth a quarter. quarter. That's a day kid. in the mind of an authentic bird marauder. That's true the Definition of a herb is sort of commonplace with an awkward rhyme and face yeah. An awful sight of sacrilege on might well, the likes to this, walk and press, best cynic. Approximately two steps uh-huh. from the truth, you a short breath from the clinic. In itself is evidence of existing paradox. Hip-hop and a rotation mix with country, western, and classic rock. What's that hell ass to the fire, the fuel that moves the jet plane. Fatally mixed with methane, explosive. The corrosive properties within will eat the skin or skeleton. Resurrect Skeletons. you from the flames and send your frame right back to hell again. You must don't know the bow rules in my real world. Why? Cause cats potatoes get weaned off of the Budweiser and cheese girls. Thorazine to keep you with these girls. Meet the battle drill instructor. Yo, yo
1: what's this. up everybody? Welcome. Up back to the houseless podcast my name is peter agostin that's a, a bit of a flashback right from 1998 the song titled planet rock yes by lewis logic also featuring l fudge lewis is our guest today on the podcast here on the House List. um and we have a hell of a conversation i gotta tell you now lewis is a little bit different from some of my previous guests now uh there's obviously a lot of stuff he has in common with with all my previous guests as far as being a performer and a touring artist and sort of, you know, obviously falls in the, in in the hip hop category, uh, for, for a portion of his career. But Lewis was my landlord for 10 years in an apartment in a house, basically in, in Brooklyn and Bushwick. And so I, I know Lewis in a totally different way than just like, as a performer or an artist. So this is a guy who I've saw almost every day for a decade. Now, when we recorded this conversation, it was just a few days ago, I hadn't seen him in a few years. So not only are we kind of catching up, but, you know, I, I get a very different kind of side of him in that, like, I, I really want to know more about his, you know, childhood and his origin story, and it's one thing when you like kind of see someone every day for a long period of time you start to take some of those things for granted i guess if you will and you don't really dig that deep uh, you know when you're always seeing someone you you're not you're not constantly going to ask them about like you know their upbringing you know and i feel like we we go pretty deep into that and lewis is like in a in like a new place in his life and we, and we we, both musically and, you know, uh, mentally, I guess, for lack of a better word. So we really go there, and it was actually really quite good. It's, it's, I think this is a really great episode. I think for fans of his music, it's going to be a super treat, because uh, I don't think he's done a long-form conversation like this in quite a while. And he has a new project that just came out called Toy Friends, which is uh, at bandcamp, toyfriend.bandcamp.com. At the end of the show, I'm going to play a song off that called Siberia. Uh, you can get it. You can stream it now. Just go to that Bandcamp page. I'm looking at it right now. Um, came out like a month ago. Foolheartedly. Foolhearty is the name of the album. So peep that out. But I wanted to start the show with that Planet Rock because that's really his very first release. And a lot has happened to him uh, from then to now, and we capture it. And I'm not going to preface it too much, so I want you guys to dig in, especially if you're a fan. If you've never heard of his music before or you're just kind of a casual listener of this podcast, then then I think there might be some other stuff that you will absolutely be able to relate with, engage with. You know, it's a story of being an outsider. It's a story about... um, Getting Sober is a story about struggling in the music industry as during very kind of uh, tumultuous and pivotal change with, from the late 90s into the early 2000s, which regardless of genre, I think everyone was affected, obviously. Plus, Lewis is a very truthful uh, animated speaker. So it's an engaging, fun conversation, nevertheless. So thank you. For tuning in uh, and for checking us out. If this is your first time ever listening to the houseless, um, that's amazing and I really appreciate it. Uh, you can check us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud, of course. If you're on SoundCloud, if you got a SoundCloud account, then I implore you to repost it, like it. You can drop a comment in there. It's a great way for me to kind of see uh, how people are vibing with it. Um, I'm on Twitter as well for what it's worth at Houseless Pod. So feel free to repost it. That that's that's how we've gotten to this point. This is the seventy third episode of the show. And by no it's no small feat, you know, because there's no advertisers, there's no network pushing this. So it's really driven by the listenership. This is listener supported. But it ain't I mean there are no donations here. This is it's more like seeing how you guys engage with it pushes me more to record these Uh, and i'm always open to hearing your suggestions as well if you want me to talk to somebody if you think there's someone that that might make for a good show just reach out to me my contacts on the soundcloud page Um, i'm always open to hearing your suggestions it's fun makes it fun for me every episode is also edited and engineered by my man cj stewart much thanks to him as always so why don't we just jump right into this thing? It's a long conversation, so I don't want to take up too much of your time in the intro. So here we are, recorded live in Brooklyn, in my living room, with Lewis Dorley, A.K.A. Lewis Logic, here in the house. Let's check it out. With the podcast, unless I'm traveling, every episode is recorded here in the living room. So every person that I talk to is sitting in that chair, um, and then that you know, and uh, as is yourself, you know. But that chair, which now I've had for a long time, a decade, um, plus, I found on the street on Knickerbocker Avenue like a blocknickckerbocker yes a, like funny. a block away you know from the from the crib, basically. This chair was a point of contention at one point. I don't know between if you remember you or not Oh no, between
0: uh, Brian, that awesome guy that I let move into the house, now I remember you got sick and you had to move out.
1: He wanted, a, he he wanted, wanted your
0: Eames chair. He would not leave me alone about it. That guy was the worst. I had to forcibly remove him from my apartment once, and I haven't done tough guy stuff in right. decades.
1: <laughs> no, I remember now. I remember, I remember that, that whole experience. I remember him, and I now I'm starting to remember him wanting that chair because I wasn't around for a while, and it was there in the apartment. And he was harassing you with his texts? Yeah, he was cra- he was crazy. That guy was yeah. a motherfucking nightmare. Yeah. Well, you know, you're sitting on it now in my apartment. Yeah, it worked out. We salvaged it, <laughs> and there's a lot of history there. There's a lot of stories. That chair's uh, had a lot of butts on it. Yeah, was Yoni's butts
0: in this ch- button this year? No, chair? I
1: did. I recorded Yoni's in Oakland, California. Oh,
0: okay, because I was on their bus recently when I was hanging out with Open Mike Eagle.
1: Were you at the show? Yeah. I was at that show as well. Oh, shit. I didn't know you were there. I didn't know either until, you know what, it's so weird, I got an email uh, this morning from Jed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, who I haven't talked to in a long time, too. We we reconnected at that show. Yeah. We've not seen
0: each other in a long time, and he heard my sad yet inspirational story of getting sober.
1: Yeah. Well, we should talk about that amongst other things. Yeah,
0: there's a lot to talk about, Uh, and let's not forget the random rap memories yeah, that's
1: um, <laughs> that can be peppered about, you know.
0: Uh, I mean, open with one. Here's a random rap memory for you: uh, Dose One's obsession with the size of your dearly departed
1: Chihuahua Murray's giant dick. <laughs> uh, that's a, that is a random one right there. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> this, is right time, this is also the first time this first time Murray's been mentioned uh, on the podcast too. Mm. And you know, I, people often ask me it's and the, like one, the tattoo one tattoo one, I have on my them. arm. He to, was a beautiful baby boy. He was, yeah, and he was, um, yeah. I miss him dearly. I'm sure. Um, yeah, he was. He created some a, funny
0: stories. He did. He cause was of
1: his disproportionately large penis,
0: <laughs> which was really funny because he was a Chihuahua. Yeah, he was small, but he It took up like a third strong. of the
1: size of his body. <laughs> uh, yeah, and you know he, you know, bless his heart. What can yeah, I say? I he he, you He's know, a good boy. yes, he was. He he. he he humped around, he did hump around he had a, some problems with no, that. I'm
0: glad that he you know he got to do some humping while he was here,
1: yeah um I was also thinking about the first time I met you because obviously like you know some like my closer friends know that we we basically lived in 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 the same in your building yeah. <laughs> for for ten years you I live with you. my first tenant in the first well, and
0: only to date house that I have owned
1: yeah. I was
0: trying to figure out how
1: I even got to that point.
0: I Here's mean, like, what I remember. I don't know if you'll think this is an accurate recollection of our connection to one another. You were writing, as I recall, maybe even for Elemental Magazine or various underground sources like that. And had interviewed me. And I recognized your name because your last name sounds cool. So mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that guy. And I was on a trip with one of my best friends traveling through uh the midwest and out toward the grand canyon and stuff right. and we were in denver and we went into a dive bar and i was sitting at the bar and the bartender comes over to me and she goes are you a rapper and i was like what <laughs> and she's like are you a rapper and i was like well yes but why are you asking me that and she was like some guy at the bar thinks he recognizes you <laughs> and i was like really and she was like yeah is your name and then she said some name that was definitely not my name oh yeah it did begin with an l like lucas or something and i was like no and she was like oh well this guy wants to buy you a drink and he, he thought that he knew you and that your name was lucas and you were a rapper and i was like my name's lewis and she was like, oh my God, you're him. You are a rapper and you're him. That guy wants to buy you drinks. And I was like, amazing. Right. I didn't get spotted a lot. I, you know, It happens over the course of my, let's see, 1998 to 2014. What is that, 16 years? Something like that. Yeah. I think it's 16 years of rapping as a career and putting out records. It would happen from time to time, but I would characterize it as something that was... Unusual.
1: Well, you had uh, more hair.
0: That's true. I had a lot more hair, Uh, regretfully. I I didn't ask for that part. That's just coming with the age. Every year my haircut gets shorter, Uh and everyone goes, you're not going bald. I'm like, bitch, you don't do the actual cutting and stuff. (laughs) I do. I know what's happening up there. I might look like I'm trying to rock my Obama right now, but it's not because (laughs) I want to. Uh I I would take back my Kravitz. Well, you know what? That's kind of out of date. I wouldn't do the, the big fro again, but... I would have like some weird tornado thing going up on up there if I could.
1: You kind of, I remember there was a period of time when it was, it was a blowout, but it was smaller.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I had a smaller one for a little while. I don't know. It just doesn't hold up as well. Right. I don't think because of age and thinness. There's still hair up there. It's just, there's not as much hair. Right. So it doesn't look good when I do it. And I was like, do you
1: want to look older? Just get, cut your hair short. Well that's that's exactly how I recognize you at that place in Denver. And I was there with my brother and like a friend like a friend of ours and I I think I was even there for like a wedding or something like that. It was a very random. Yeah. And it was I don't even remember the the bar it was the one and only time I was ever in that place too. And I don't go to Denver that often either, you know. So People
0: say random about a lot of things and they don't really mean that. That was very random.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I was like telling my brother, I was like, I think this is this dude, Lewis Logic, man, and uh there you go. Yes. That, that was, I, that was well, I think that was literally the first time we met, first face-to-face, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I
0: think so, too. But no, that, I, that was my recollection of how we actually right. met face-to-face. So you were, you'd come across my desktop by some means or another, I'm pretty sure it was by an interview or something like that,
1: um, but we'd not actually met in person. Well, when did you start writing for Elemental? Because, you know, people that remember that magazine, you were a... Uh, you were a pretty big oh, fixture. You were a columnist. Mm-hmm. Idiocracy. Yes. Uh, which, oh, man.
0: I, you know what? I've let go of this, but for a few years, I was like, I I know Mike Judge likes rap. That motherfucker heard of my column and he named his movie Idiocracy. <laughs> Bullshit, man. It <laughs> was my if idea. The,
1: if that actually is how it went down, I mean, what that would an be honor, because cool. that's an amazing yeah, movie. That
0: was a great fucking movie. Yeah, um, one of my favorites. Very relevant, currently, in Absolutely. fact. Absolutely. Um, so all this to say, that is how I think it all started, but the way that we actually became close friends was my old booking agent, uh, Gabe Kahn, oh, yeah. from North Carolina, had moved out to Humboldt County and met you, Right. and he told me, hey, I know you and your girlfriend Malia bought a house recently, um, and that you're looking for tenants. You know Peter Agostin, right? And I was like, yeah, I know the writer? And he was like, yeah. And he was like, he's going to move out to New York. Um, I don't know. It's just a whim. Maybe it's a good fit. And I was like, wow, amazing. And then your ex-girlfriend, Kelly, came and saw the place without you.
1: Yep, I remember that. Yeah.
0: And you guys ended up taking the apartment, and you were our first tenants. Uh, And
1: that started a 10-year-long adventure. (laughs) Yeah. I know, and... Uh, well Shouts to Brycon Cause that's who, that, who That's Gabe Con Oh yeah Brycon just, Yes
0: But you know If we want to get real specific And accurate Hypheso Brycon Oh
1: that was his first name right Yeah When he was rapping Or when he was producing right. DJ When he started rapping It was Hypheso right. Brycon uh, Cause I went on tour with him It was AWOL1 Z-Man And Brycon And myself This is actually before I moved to New York and That he uh, Booked this tour I think it was called The Alphabet Soup tour or something that had a weird name attached to it but i dj for all three of them and uh it was it was like you know one of those tours that i know you you've done oh yeah a lot of Maybe. yeah i've listened to a lot of brycons lispy raps uh oh tours with him yeah, yeah
0: well i mean god love him if he was your booking agent he was also your tour mate he, right he really liked to insert himself into the tours Even going so far as putting together a three-man act, uh, Ra the Rugged Man, Acrobatic, and myself for an Australian tour, and inserting himself into that. Right. While there wasn't really a whole hell of a lot of reason for him to be there, it was useful having him around, and he did DJ for all three of us, which was nice.
1: Right. I mean, that's one style of booking a tour. You know, it's it's a way to to get out there and make uh, get that history and.
0: He really wanted to foster his career as an artist. And I understand that. I just felt at times like it was at our expense. I was like, you don't really need to be here. Nobody knows who you are. They're not worried about whether or not you're here. You're another butt in the car farting.
1: And (laughs) it's unnecessary. So, okay, but that's like already... You'd already been basically like putting records out for, for... a few years yeah, by this definitely. Point in time so Absolutely. I want to kind of it would be great to even go back because that because now we're sort of talking about like the middle of the aughts and you are kind of a in my opinion you're like this sort of survivalist of like the indie rap like uh, uh, era of like the what was the tail end of the late 90s into like the mid yeah, aughts I mean I put is, out my that, first that was a, single in 1998 right it was a tough. I mean, it was a tough uh, land, like uh, landscape to traverse as the years went by. Yeah, it you got know? weirder and weirder. Yeah, like post Bush into like Obama's first administration. As far as like underground <clears> hip hop <throat> of that era, the CD era, and all that shit. That's kind of like the later years. But I want the early two thousands were good. It, yeah, it got brutal. The
0: in the late two thousands, like two thousand nine. and nine. Mhm. Um, and, and on. It became more and more difficult. I had to tour more, and I was making less. Right. Um, so where does it start for you? Going back further, how the hell did this rap thing happen? So
1: you're from Long Island?
0: Yes. Um, where dude? You- West Babylon in Suffolk County. Um, like,
1: okay, well, that's where K Solo's from. Yeah.
0: I think, right? Yeah, or EPMD, anyway. They were from... Uh, one of them Brent- was from... Bretwood, Long Island, right? One of them went to school in North Babylon, I was told. But I don't know. Maybe that's just people trying to claim shit. Right. Well, I love Long Island hip hop, like kind of map dotting. Yeah, it's know? peppered around. Right. Um, so, the story that I got as a kid, and I don't know how real this story is now. Right. I'm very bent on honesty these days as a guy in sobriety because um, lies and manipulation and just little distortions of the truth have really worked against me in the grand scheme of my adult life. So I'm gonna to try to say this as accurately as I can without claiming anything as fact that I don't know is fact. But what I was told was uh, my biological mom was 13 and she had a love affair with a young boy who was visiting from Puerto Rico and then he went back. She did not know she was pregnant. She ended up delivering me. This is a story that I got, I don't know how real it is, okay. in a family friend's apartment because she had run away. She didn't want her parents to know that she was wow. pregnant. And, you know, the whole ABC after school special thing, cutting my umbilical cord with house scissors and shit. Like, what? Really? That's what I was told. Right. And then uh, she stayed there for as long as she could until they told her, you have to leave before the social service people crawl up our ass. Okay. And she snuck out one night, and because she was a 14 year old girl by the time I was born, she did not have the good sense to take a jacket or any of the stuff she needed, and at this time, since I was born in December, it probably would have been like March or so, Uh so cold, Um, and she was in Harlem. So she was running around the street in the middle of the night, and cops picked her up, brought her into the precinct. My father was the desk sergeant who was on duty. Um, They would do like rotating shifts when you're a cop, so you'd be out in a car, then you'd have a walking beat, then you'd do desk duty. He hated the desk.
1: What precinct is it? This is uptown.
0: 25th Precinct. Um, Yeah, in Harlem. And I was brought in with my biological mom, and apparently a social worker came in on call to deal with the situation and was like, all right, so what we're going to do is put the mother and the the child in different foster homes. The idea Mm -hmm. being she's too young to take care of this Mm -hmm. kid, and ultimately where we place the child will end up being a long-term home, perhaps even for adoption." And so my father was already a foster parent at this point. Oh, wow. And the story that I got was that he was screened right then and there on the spot and took me home from work. So my mom wow. had sent the kids off to school, and my dad came back to Queens where we lived and was like, guess what? And my mom was like, so well, why do you have a baby? Oh, man. And then he told her the story, and she was like, let's keep him. So that's wow. the way it was told to me when I was little. Um, my family ended up moving out to Long Island before I was old enough to know anything unless I had this timeline muddled which I'm not sure yeah and um I stayed in Long Island till the end of 8th grade my father retired from the police force in 87 or 88 okay and moved back to where he came from in central Pennsylvania very rural community and they let me stay for a half year with my sister to whom they sold our childhood home Hmm for half of what it was worth right. so that she could get started in a marriage she had just entered into. And I was allowed to stay and finish 8th grade. Then I moved to Central Pennsylvania for two years where I was brutalized and experienced proper old-fashioned racism. Not to follow you around the store because you're brown and you look like you might steal something type. But the you're a nigger and I'm going to beat you up mm. and... Yeah, like cross-burner style racism. stuff This is like central Pennsylvania. Yeah, Yeah, in in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s. Stuff that most black people who are a lot blacker than me don't experience because they grow up insulated in black communities surrounded by other black people. So it sucked. It was pretty terrible. And I think in some regard, the rap thing was born out of that awful experience because by the end of it, after having been assaulted a number of times by other students, walking down the halls over the years and having kids just shout in the crowds, nigger, just, and I oh just turned my head and like oh. I couldn't, I don't know who it was. And what was right. I going to do about it anyway? Back then, I was 5'9 and like 125 pounds. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, it ended with a teacher assaulting me in a classroom I had a teacher who was also my soccer coach and I was told by one of my teammates that they overheard him talking to a local college student who was um, interning as an assistant coach because he was in sports medicine. And my history teacher slash soccer coach was saying, Lewis isn't really all that great at soccer. But I like to start him in the games because the color of his skin intimidates the other teams. Oh, my God. And so, I didn't think that my friend Lance could have made this story up because he didn't seem devious enough to come up with something like that. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of nuance in that little story. Yeah. It seemed too real. And so, I I tried to confront my soccer coach about it, but I was 16 at the time. Yeah. And... It didn't go well, and I ended up in a shouting match with him, and I quit the team. But he was also my history teacher. So this bastard just tormented me in history class, and every time I got a grade that was less than a perfect score, he would be like, well, that's because you're a quitter, and you quit the soccer team. You'd say stuff like that in front of everybody. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, So my sister did not make it in that marriage she entered into when she took our childhood home um it turned out that her husband was one of those guys who could be on a tv show um as a con artist who had two lives he had a whole other family somewhere else he was an ex convict and he was illiterate she didn't know any of that shit oh my god yeah it's crazy yeah um so she had moved to central pennsylvania to let my parents cushion her fall and they bought her a house there after she lost our childhood home. Oh man. Yeah, it really sucked. Um, And she hated it because she was a New Yorker and she grew up in Queens. So she had a couple of daughters and had to be near my mom and dad so they would take care of her. But on the weekends, she would run back to New York as often as possible. And I would go with her because I hated central Pennsylvania because of how cruel they were to me. Not that Long Island was heaps better. I always lived in white neighborhoods because I was adopted by a white family. So, light-skinned as I am and biracial as I am, for all intents and purposes, to most of those people, I might as well have just arrived from Africa. Yeah. And they really fucked with me about it. But Long Island was definitely better than Central Pennsylvania, so I took any opportunity I could to get out of that hellhole. Right. And I would go away on Fridays and then often skip school on Monday because I had really amazing grades. So what was really going to be the consequence of that, as long as I didn't miss too many days to move on to the next grade. Right, it itself out a little, right? Totally. So at the end of the marking period in most schools, they'll give you a report card on the end of the day so that you don't walk around the school all day pissed off if you did poorly and cause problems. Mm-hmm. So they'd send you home with your report card. You go back to home room, they give you your report card, and then you go home. Yeah. But you could tabulate what your average was going to be when you went to each of your classes on the report card day, the teacher would show you in their grade book. They'd put two sheets of paper blocking everybody else's names and scores mm-hmm. and then run their finger along and show you yours. Okay. And so I go up to the front of the class expecting to see a 100 because I was like, fuck this guy. I can't curse him out. He's my teacher. I can't beat him up. He's a grown ass man. But what I can do is ace his class and that's the best fuck you I got for this dude. Yeah. So I did, and I was a smart kid. So I had over a 100% test average because of bonus points and little activities that you would get. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got up to the front of the desk and I was the kind of kid who did make honor roll. So I was expecting to see 100 plus there and he ran his finger along and it said 80. And I was like, "Oh
1: shit. what the
0: fuck? And I was like, how is that possible? And I was really upset, and then he was like, well, let's look back here. And he had the different subsections of um, your grade tabulated, and my test average was well over 100, um, and my homework average was 100. But then my in-class assign- assignments average was ridiculous. It was like a 50 or something crazy. And I was like, What? who has a bad in class assignment average right. what else is there to do in class but do the assignment That doesn't even make sense Right. But this is his way of how do I have a bad in class assignment yeah. average and he's like well let's see and he flips back through and he's like oh here you got a zero on this assignment and you got a zero on this one and I was like why wouldn't I have done it and he's like oh I see you were absent this must have been one of your trips to New York <laughs> I, ha- I handed out an important ditto packet uh-huh. on that Monday and you weren't here to do it and I was yeah. like dude, why didn't you tell me that I was missing these things? They didn't come out of the book. They were like ditto packets that you made up. Why didn't you tell me? And he was like, it's not my job to explain to you what you've missed when you're absent. It's your job to ask. And I pointed over to the chalkboard, and I was like, then what is that? And there was a list of people's names, and I remember specifically this kid Dave Jackman's name was at the top of the list, and it had... Assignments that he didn't turn in that he had to do. And <laughs> Literally. I, yeah. And I was like, where's my name on that list? Yeah. And he was like, go sit down. Wow. Yeah. And so I sat down and I was crying and I was really upset. I'm going to try not to cry when I tell this story. It usually makes me cry because okay. it's a really cool cry story. Yeah, I hope I don't. <laughs> um, he passed out a test that we had already gone over. And... <clears throat> I'd gotten 100 on the test, so I I was really hurt already, and I was like, I don't even need this to go over this to find out what the real answers are, because obviously I knew them. I got 100. And he plopped this little stack of test papers on my desk, and I grabbed them, held them back over behind my head, and just let them go for the person behind me out of annoyance. And whoever it was, unfortunately for me, that day was absent. And so the papers just went everywhere, all over the floor. Mm. And he jumped up out of his desk, and he was like, you little bastard. And he pushed the desk out of the way, and he grabbed me around the throat and picked me up and shook me back and what? forth and then slammed my face into the carpet of the classroom. Jesus, really? Yeah. Damn. And I was crying so hard and was flailing my arms around. In the middle of the class? In front of everybody. Yeah. Wow. And I ended up catching him with an elbow or something, and he let me go. And he was walking back to his desk and muttering about what a little bastard I was and whatever, and I should be expelled. And I was like, fuck you! I'm going to tell my dad and he's going to kick your fucking ass! (laughs) Uh And he was like, get the hell out of my classroom! And I got up and I ran out and I slammed the classroom door so hard that the little window broke. Wow. And I ran to the principal's office. Yeah. I ran to the principal's office and I tried to tell him what happened. And teacher came bursting in behind me with a demerit slip and was like, I want him expelled, I want detention and he just started listing all the things that could happen to you. And I was like, I want to call the fucking cops. Give me a phone, I'm calling the police. And they were like, You're not calling the police, Lewis, sit down and calm down. And I was like, Fuck you And I ran out of the office and they chased me.
1: Oh my
0: god. And I, I made it out of the building and they chased me down the sidewalk but I was a 16 year old kid who was limber as fuck and and they were middle aged or older guys I went to a pay phone and I called my mom collect because this was 1992 so nobody had a cell phone Mel Gibson and Danny Glover had a cell phone that was (laughs) on like a backpack you had to carry (laughs) but nobody else
1: not in central Pennsylvania (laughs) no
0: Um, so she couldn't even understand me because I was crying so hard, but she finally figured out what was going on. She came and got me, and she signed me out of school that day. And she brought me into the principal's office, and she cursed him out. And then she took me to each one of my classrooms to return my books and curse my teachers out. Wow. Yeah. Um, it was crazy, and everybody was just staring aghast. Yeah. Because uh, so, it's a super weird thing to see in a high school classroom. Yeah, absolutely. So... They tried for a brief period to find me another place to go to school in that region of Pennsylvania, but where else was I going to go that that wasn't also a problem? So after investigating a Catholic school and like another little private Christian school, I was like, can I just go back to Long Island? I still had a sister and a brother who lived there. And my my parents felt so bad about what was happening. Um, We had this one incident where... We, we actually tried to sue the school is what happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And 17 or so kids out of the maybe 20-something that were in the classroom signed affidavits for the police department saying that I was assaulted by my teacher without oh, cause. Yeah. And the DA in that town would not take the case. He said, oh, he wow. said you have no case. Uh, right. um, we found out later that he was a relative, like a, a distant cousin. Yeah, okay. of, of, that makes sense. Yeah.
1: Fucking asshole. Yeah,
0: totally. <laughs> right. um, so my mom and dad... Took out a mortgage on their house to hire a lawyer from New York. Wow, okay. And we went to a mediation that was supposed to be a, quote, fact finding meeting, hearing in Harrisburg, PA. And they told us not to bring our lawyer. And it was supposed to be us, the principal, and the vice principal. And when we got there, they brought the school board lawyer with them. And the fucking mediator let the lawyer sit in on the whole thing oh, and wow. talk. Yeah. Huh. And I was trying to tell my story, and the guy kept interrupting me and contradicting all of my statements, and my dad tried to defend me. And he started crying, and I was like, I can't do this. I have to get out of here. Mm-hmm. And I ran out, and I was like i don't want to be here anymore why are you making me do this i told you these kids keep beating me up and they just never believed me when i was a kid about the racist problems i was having because they they didn't see it i'm oh, sorry
1: no no man and uh i mean this happened to you and it happened it happens to other people too it's important for you to talk about yeah
0: it. yeah i do a lot of that these days in therapy and stuff um I don't know, it was just like seeing my dad cry. I mean, he was a, oh, yeah. a I mean, Green Beret in Vietnam and like a, a cop in New York City, a white cop in Harlem in the 70s. So it was, he kind of reminded me of Clint Eastwood. And I was like, it's fucking weird seeing this guy cry. I couldn't handle it. Right.
1: Well, it's, it hurts in a much different way. You know,
0: yeah. Too. So my parents felt so ashamed about what happened to me and the many years of them ignoring this problem that they gave me my dad's new Cadillac, and let me move into my sister's house, who did not live in the same school district I had left on the island, mm-hmm. and then use my brother, who did live in that district's address, and I would drive from Amityville, de la Sol land, mm-hmm. to West Babylon to go to high school in my dad's brand new Cadillac <laughs> <Wow>. at
1: 17. <laughs> Well, I mean, what a dad to do all that to yeah. just get you. He he's a, you an education. amazing guy
0: and as was my mom. She she's gone now, but um he's he's an amazing guy. He just didn't know how to handle my problems. Right. Mean, neither of them did. And they didn't want to believe that that was happening happening to me because they loved me and they didn't see those things about me. Sure. So it seemed impossible that other people would treat me that way. Right. And I ended up really going in the opposite direction that I had been because in central Pennsylvania I was trying to assimilate I wanted to blend in the first day of school I showed up in a pair of Z-Cabarichis and a high top pair of black Adidas with white stripes and an IOU sweater like a super stereotypical Long Island Guido outfit Mm -hmm. and this is the first thing that happened to me in that place I got on the school bus in front of my dad's house (coughs) And I went to the back of the bus because that's where the cool kids sit. And I sat across the aisle from a chubby-cheeked redhead kid with freckles named Corey Boob. And he looked down at my shoes and he said, How far did you chase a nigger to get those shoes? Oh, my God. That was the first interaction I ever had with somebody from that school. Jesus. And I started swinging at him, not oh. knowing that the entire school was going to be like this. Right. And
1: this is is West Babylon.
0: No, that was in Lock Haven. So that was in ninth grade. Right. right. Um, It was my first uh, experience in central Pennsylvania with those kids. And I couldn't hit him because he was bigger than me and stronger. But the bus driver kicked me off the bus. We didn't make it 20, 30 yards from the way they picked me up in front of my dad's house. Oh, my God. And my dad had to drive me to school the first day of school. And I had to go right to the principal's office and have a discussion about this. That's how that place started for me. So I changed my style of dress and everything to fit in with the way those kids did
1: things. Well, did you feel like when you got to Long Island, did you feel like you didn't have to like yes. change your whole shit up? Just to- I, I decided to go back to be yeah. who I wanted to be, and sure. in
0: fact, I went further. Mm-hmm. And I had gotten really into rap records. What year? Well, this is by 93. 92.
1: ninety two. Okay, so all that ninety two is a big rap year. year. Yeah. Well, it's a
0: big year for you. Yeah, it was a huge year for me. So I got like- back to New York. And I started wearing all this Malcolm X gear and stuff. Like I went in the opposite direction as a means to heal my wounded pride right. and learn to love being a black person. Although I never really knew what I was growing up because my parents didn't really know. Right. Um, it's just all those horrible traumatic instances of adversity really pushed me into an identity as a black man. And... Even though I didn't really know exactly what I was by my appearance, I was like, I got to be part black in some kind of way. Um, and then I got super into rap music and the style of dress. And I was a skateboarder, and I was actually really good. And yeah. I ended up being sponsored on a pro team for a few years. Really? Yeah. I knew um, that. They were originally called number nine, but ultimately became Chapman. And Chapman was a big company for a long time and actually made all the wood for Zoo York and a oh, bunch wow. of other companies. Right. Um, so Greg Chapman, who started that company, was from West Babylon. Um, right. and would you so, go
1: in the city and skate?
0: Yeah, a little bit, like the Brooklyn Bridge Banks and places like that. Um, my recollection of a lot of stuff is really foggy, so I, I don't right. remember exactly everything that I did. But yes, I, I would come into the city to skate and to just goof off and drink 40s and stuff as you do when you're a kid yeah Yeah. it was easier to get that stuff in the city than on Long Island where it was suburban so stores were more careful about those things sure in the city the more run down the neighborhood was the easier it was to buy alcohol and things like that and
1: also I feel like in the city clearly you you can you can be whoever you want to be absolutely you know you're not uh, you know and I grew up in a small southern college town as like I guess a a, you know identifying as a, a white male that listens to hip-hop so of course I got called a wigger left and uh, right yeah I'm sure you know sure you but <laughs> I'm, from, I'm a first generation kid so my, I don't have any family that lives in the United States period you know what I'm saying yeah. besides my my parents. Kind of Hungarian yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah so my identifying with 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 the people that were kind of like dogging me as a kid uh, was I was like I'm not even like you I went to I mean I have a lot of people I love from where I grew up, but I went. But like, actually, you know, riff raff, the rapper, yeah, of riffraff. course. So I went to. I had probably like seventy-five riff raffs in my high school. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, yeah. and no I, diss to riff raff. I respect riff raff as an artist, but guys that were like that kind of personality, yeah. you know. I met plenty of those. Yeah, in yeah. <laughs> my travels. No shots at riff raff. I'm a fan of riff raff, the rapper. You know, but yeah, the persona yeah. of certain people that were not cool, but more like racists. You know? yeah. anyway or like just super um, judgmental close minded people Yeah, you know, I would say that these things are what led me
0: to getting into rap because it was a knee jerk reaction Right. as a means of defense against the racist experience that I had I went way into the black thing and rap was a part of that for me and so by the time I made it to college I had already written a few rhymes and heard my voice recorded for the first time and was like Never doing that again. I sound terrible.
1: So what year are we talking about for this? This Uh, The
0: first time I heard my voice recorded would have been in uh, 92, I think.
1: Um. Who did you do that with? Uh,
0: There was this kid that I met through skateboarding who went to the neighboring school in Babylon. We all lived in West Babylon. Babylon we thought of as the rich part of town because parts of it border on the water. Uh And a lot of people had homes that were directly on the water and boats and stuff. And they were wealthy. But there were also parts of Babylon that were a little more run down. And I met this kid who was a lot like me. He was biracial. His mother was Korean. And she was one of those terribly sad stories of a woman who was brought over here and immediately hooked on drugs so that she would have to... Turn tricks to mm. to get drugs, and so she was a heroin addict. Mm. And my friend Charlie, his father was a black soldier, um, in Korea. Wow. And so um, she really resented Charlie because he represented all these Johns. And, mm. and mm-hmm. she tried to kill him in his sleep before she held a knife to his throat, and he woke mm. up and he. Um, threw her off of him and then she kicked him when he was running down the stairs and he fell down the stairs and he had to go to the hospital and oh shit yeah he had a really rough childhood um but he was a really great skater he was very brave and he really liked me because I was a very technically skilled skater and so
1: well and, and it sounds like not to interrupt you but it yeah, sounds right. like the two of you guys beyond what you share with skating and possibly music which we're leading into obviously but is maybe you had some kind of traumatic experiences in totally. your life, too. And right? we were both biracial black
0: kids, right. so we, we really connected with each other on a lot of levels. Charlie was the one who got me back into rap. I listened to it when I was really young, like 10, 11. I was into breakdancing, and I, the first record I ever got was UTFO's Roxanne Roxanne. Dope. That was mine, you dope, know, dope. not my brother's record. Um, and then I had a 45 with a little orange sticker in the center. Um, Nucleus is jam on it.
1: <laughs>
0: and You are old school. Yeah, I am. And I was a breaker. And I was good. Actually, I, the first time I ever drank, I, I won second place in a breakdancing contest in a church basement um, for my killer hand spin. And I was like 11, and I was competing against kids that were like 17. Wow, cool. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. But also, it really made an alcohol, it gave me a bad association with alcohol as being like a superpower thing um, that later came back to haunt me. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so, and then I had another brief stint with rap music, maybe in like seventh or eighth grade, because my then best friend introduced me to the Three Feet High and Rising album which for a long time was my favorite rap album uh, by De La Soul. And then I continued to listen to rap, but very casually, and I only caught the things that really, really made it into suburbia and small places like N.W.A.'s uh, first big album because I was in central Pennsylvania at that point, um, so in like 89, 90, 91, so not that much rap made its way to me. No. Uh, 2 Live Crew made it to me, like NWA made it to me. Basically things that were shocking.
1: Yeah, like maybe cut through the pop culture kind right. of Be- uh,
0: because of how controversial they were. Right.
1: And that's what maybe got them on the news in the first place. Right.
0: Yeah. Or like really friendly rap. Sure. So like right. A, right. like like twin hype. Do You remember <laughs> yes. those guys on Profile? Of yeah, of course. And they were twins. <laughs>
1: yeah, like maybe Kid and play.
0: Yeah, I mean I didn't really listen to those guys, but yeah. obviously I knew who they were. Um and then uh like young MC. Sure. Stuff that was really wholesome. hmm mm-hmm. Um that stuff made it to me. Rob bass and DJ Easy Rock. Of course. But I wasn't really a hip hop head. Yeah. Um I don't really even I guess I listened to a lot of um like Motley Crue and, and Def Leppard and stuff like that because my brothers listened to that stuff. They were really stereotypical suburban Long Island Italians. Sure. And you are like, you fucking uh, Led Zeppelin, yo. Did you guys go to Nassau Coliseum <laughs> Oh, together? yeah, absolutely. What,
1: what, is, what have you seen I saw Nassau wrestling events. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, like WrestleMania? Yeah, exactly, that kind of thing. Right. And, and then um, I went to a couple hockey games, uh, the Islanders.
1: But you never saw like Def Leppard or Van Halen? No, at Nassau Coliseum? Uh, actually
0: my first concert to, to my eternal shame. Was uh, Brian Adams' Reckless Tour. (laughs) Wow, that would not have guessed that. It was at Madison Square Garden. It was the first time I smelled pot. Wow. Yeah. And I was like, what is that? To my sister. And she was like, don't worry about it. And don't tell daddy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So then, uh, when I went back to Long Island, I went real hard in on the hip-hop thing. And... I fell in love with native tongues, mm-hmm. and so like all the tribe, Dela and Black Sheep stuff, and I had started hanging out with this kid, Charlie, and Charlie aspired to rap as well as skate. And I was like, "How can you rap though? Like, you can't rap. Yeah, you just like you're a rapper or you're not a rapper, and we're not rappers." Mm-hmm, and he was like, "No, I'm getting good at it. I've been practicing him." And he would do a rhyme for me, and I'd be like, "Wow, you sound real. You sound like YouTube." because he had a really raspy voice uh-huh. and uh, he was like, you can rap too, man. Come on, rap with me. And he kept pushing me and so I, I wrote a rhyme um, and it was such a, a nod to the things that I heard in Tribe Called Quest Records. It had the words harmony and unity in it yeah. and like hip-hop nation, like stuff <laughs> like that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um yeah I get it it was it was really cute mm-hmm. <laughs> what what a blatant attempt it was to mimic what I heard in those early tribe records and um oh yeah I rhymed community with unity that was- <laughs> <laughs> it was the first rhyme I ever wrote right. it was like harmony fills the hip hop community something uh with unity <laughs> it was really funny that's a positive message right there. it was a positive message but I was trying and Charlie had arranged for myself, our friend DJ, and him to record and gotten beats from some 20-something-year-old guy who was a rap producer, okay. <laughs> um, and I recorded my verse. I don't even remember how we did it. I think it was actually a little studio. I recorded my verse, and I heard it back for the first time, and I was mortified when I heard <laughs> my voice. Mm because you hear your voice through your head and it sounds right. so different when yeah. you hear a recording of it and you go that's not me I don't sound like that I know and I was just I was so upset and traumatized by the disparity between what I heard in my head and what I heard on the record mm-hmm. and I was very late to the puberty party when I graduated high school I was still 5'9 mm-hmm. and like 130 135 pounds I'm almost 6'2 now uh-huh. <laughs> um, and I gained and I gained those last inches, between the ages of 21 and 22. Right. So even my license from when I was 20, I was still 5'9 or 5'10. Right, right. And all of a sudden, I just, boop, like four inches, like nothing.
1: Yeah, even when I met you, you were like this kind of bean pole. Yes,
0: I was way skinnier. Skinnier. That was before I had discovered, like, exercise and mm-hmm. know, <laughs> trying to get laid. Uh, so... I vowed to never rap again. And I don't know exactly what happened, but I was sponsored by Chapman, who was then called number nine, and I was skating and filming for my video, and um, I had applied to to go to Columbia and to Seton Hall. Columbia because it was Ivy League and I wanted to show off my intelligence, Seton Hall because they were a Cinderella story in the NCAA tournament that year. (laughs) Yeah. That's so funny. And I got into Seton Hall, and then Columbia sent me a response saying, "We like what we see in your application, but there's some stuff missing from your high school transcript. Just send it back to us, and you know I think things will be good to go." And I was Mm -hmm. like, "Holy fuck! I'm going to get into an Ivy League school." And my mom and dad were like, "Before you get all excited, we need to look into the finance part of this." And then we we teased it out to the bitter end. And came to the conclusion that we could not afford to send me there. Right. And so my mom and dad were like, I'm sorry, but you applied to two schools we can't afford. Your dad was a cop,
1: right?
0: not a lawyer. Wrong side of law enforcement. <laughs> right, right. Um, and I was like, you're fucking kidding me. I got into an Ivy League school and I can't go? And they were like, just apply to some other schools. It was like August yeah. before the semester was supposed to start or, or like late July. And I was like, I'm not, not, not going to get to go to college. And they're like, just stop it. Just... And they helped me get the Penn State application and then the University of Pittsburgh application and put them in. And I got accepted to both schools. And Penn State offered me a scholarship. My mom was like, you're going to Penn State. And I was like, fuck. Uh-huh. You know why I didn't want to go there? Because it was 45 minutes from where all that traumatic shit happened Sir, right. I got So I was like, fuck this, man. I'm going to Pitt. It's in a city. Yeah. And my mom was like, you can't turn down the scholarship. And I was like, God damn it. These fucking people with their scholarship. I don't want it. Right. And I ended up having to go to Penn State, and I was so hurt and mad. And ironically, the school colors of Columbia are blue and white, right. like navy blue and white, as they are at Penn State. Right. And right. I was like,
1: oh, uh, it's the wrong blue and white. <laughs> so did, how long did you stay there for? Did you ra- I graduated from Penn oh, okay. State. Um, What's, I've never been to State College before. That's the town, right? Yeah. What's it like? Uh, it's it's adorable. It's
0: it. It looks like a movie college campus, right. um like Rodney Dangerfield and Back to School. Mm-hmm. All these big, beautiful old buildings and stuff with pillars everywhere, and it's like a couple of square miles that's just completely cond- densely packed with students. Right. So it's like a city of young people. Yeah, uh, it feels like the city of the lost children or some shit who are all getting a good education <laughs> or partying too much. Right. And this then, is a
1: big like party town too, right? It
0: is. And actually that year um, they were number one on Playboy's party school list. <laughs> so there was that consolation. Right. Um, also, my freshman year they won the Rose Bowl. Uh, and they had uh, a lot of star football players. There was this guy, Kajana Carter, there mm-hmm. who ended up going into the NFL. And I cut some of the football players' hair and stuff. Oh, really? Yeah, because... Did you work at a barbershop? I learned how to cut hair by experimenting on my nephew and myself. My sister that I lived with on Long Island, when I moved back there, she was one of those white girls who just loves black dick. Never had a a white boyfriend in her life. Uh And she ran away when she was 17 because my dad, even though he adopted me... And I do believe he's a really awesome guy. He He's like a relic of a different generation and was like, I don't agree with interracial relationships. I was like, dad, how fucking weird. Yeah. And and ironic is that that you adopted me and you don't agree with interracial relationships. He's like, well, it's confusing for the kids. Hmm. And I was like, well, I'm not going to argue that because I'm one of those. So, yes, right. it is. But that's specious reasoning, man. I, I don't think sure. that there's anything wrong with this. It's love. We're all people, et cetera. Right. But my sister didn't want my dad's wrath, so she moved out, well, ran away when she was 17 to be with this Jamaican guy who lived in uh, Wyandanch, the, the black neighborhood near West Babylon. Where Rakim is from. Yes, exactly. Um, you're real good with the hip-hop math along the island <laughs> Yes. Um, so, uh, that was my first experience in being in a black neighborhood. Uh, and surrounded by other black people when I moved in with her. Uh, I learned.
1: How did, feel? how did it feel?
0: It was scary because I was such a white kid for a black kid. And they really teased me. It was also a really West Indian neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people spoke Patois mm-hmm. and slang. And so I had a hard time understanding people and what was going on. And they teased me and they called me white boy and stuff because mm-hmm. of how light I was and the way yeah. I talked. But they also knew that I was like them. And they, they liked me, and they, they like to tease me and make fun of me and be right, like, right. you'll figure it out one day, white boy. <laughs> huh. Um, it was like a weird rite of passage thing that I was going through, where they were kind of putting me through black boot camp by, like, teasing me right. and pushing me in a certain
1: direction. Would you say that, like, this stuff, going through these kinds of experiences, like, as a teenager and, like, into college, like sort of re does it replay itself out like as you put records out you know cuz you cuz you cuz since i've known you for so long i've seen your your career arc in this way where it goes from a kind of uh, you know some subsects of like traditional hip hop into more a much more like orchestrated musical uh, yeah. thing where it's you know you're you've definitely like uh, existed in different kind of places, you know, musically, too. Yeah. And the way you're describing, like, you know, okay, so you're in, like, an all white, like, town in P- middle Pennsylvania as the only uh, um, uh, brown skinned person around, and then you're in, and yet you're being, you know, um, chastised there, you go to an all black neighborhood and then and you stick out there yeah, you know. that
0: definitely happened to me I, I was a fish out of water everywhere I went because of this Right, and I think that's what my dad was talking about when he was like, it's confusing for the kids um, but uh, thankfully my sister was one of those because that was my first real experience with, with being in a black neighborhood and when I got to Penn State I I had practiced cutting my nephew's hair and learned to cut my own hair. So he got a lot of really fucked up haircuts for a while. Mm-hmm. My sister would go to work, and at night I would be like, Andrew, come here. You want a haircut? <laughs> and he was little. He was like seven or eight. And <laughs> okay. he'd be like, okay. And I would finish, and there'd be all these holes and stuff. Wow. And my sister would get so mad. But I eventually got pretty good at it. And then she'd be like, can you cut Andrew's hair? Right, And... So when I got to Penn State, that was a skill that I had, and there were no black barbers there. Oh, wow. So a lot of the athletes would let me cut their hair. So I got yeah. to cut all these guys' hair that ended up going into NFL and stuff. Hmm. It's pretty cool. Were um, you rapping
1: in, Pen- in Penn State? Yes.
0: So this is what happened: um, the skateboarding thing. Immediately, it became apparent to me that that was not very cool in the black community, especially not in 1993 when I started college. And there was no X Games. There was no Tony Hawk video game. Skateboarding was still a really weird counterculture thing to do. Mm-hmm. And people called you things like Skate Rat and Skate Fag and mm-hmm. stuff. Right. I don't know um, Yeah, I'm sure you do. <laughs> and so it, it actually wasn't cool like how it is now. Like all the cool kids are skaters now. When I was a skater, right. the jocks wanted to beat you up.
1: Right. That's, right.
0: that's what it meant to be a skater. You were a social outcast. And the only people that you got along with were other skaters or, or other outcasts who were unpopular or uncool for whatever reason like the gay kid at school because everybody fucked with him because he was gay right. and political correctness was not a thing yet you no. know in, in the late 70s as I was growing up through the 80s and in the early 90s political correctness hadn't really become a thing at that point yet so people had no problem telling you really foul shit right to your face yeah. and When I got to Penn State, I really wanted to fit into the black community. I kind of looked at it like black boot camp and like a start over. And it was that for me. And I learned my own dialect of ebonics slowly over time from rap records and being around black people. And picking up a little bit of a twang. And slowly curating a manner of black speak Mm -hmm. that was convincing. Mm -hmm. And I was dressing the part. And I was really, really into hip hop. And I met a kid from Penn State whose name was Penn because his parents were like s- crazy Penn State fans. Wow. <laughs> so they named wow. him Penn. Okay. And he, he was not a terribly tall guy, maybe like 5'10", but he had super long feet, like size 13 or 14s. And so um, a local drug dealer slash producer had taken him under his wing as an aspiring rapper and he called himself The Feet. Okay. And mm-hmm. he played me a demo and it was the first time I heard a finished song with an original beat and was blown away. And so I befriended this kid and from what lessons I had received from my skater friend Charlie, who actually grew to be a pretty amazing rapper at a point but could not get himself out of the street hustle thing to become effective.
1: So he never really put records out or anything. He never put out records or anything,
0: but he got good. So when uh, Black Moon Enter the Stage came out, he had a style of rapping that was very simpler, similar to Buckshot's more aggressive delivery style. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he was so good. And, oh. and he could freestyle for hours. Right. And so he had gotten me into doing it with him because he had nobody else to rap with. So he kind right. of forced me to do it. Yeah. And by the time I got to Penn State, I had never really written rhymes, but I could freestyle. Right, right. And this kid, The Feet, Penn, had a written song but couldn't freestyle. And so we imparted one another's gifts to each other. Yeah, yeah. And I ended up recording my first ever rap demos at Penn State when I was introduced to Chops from the Mountain Brothers. Yes. Who was living in the dorm room of his bandmate, Styles. Oh, yeah. Even though he had already graduated and was no longer an enrolled student (laughs) at Penn State. Okay. He was sleeping on the floor in Styles' dorm room And then their other bandmate Chris would come over. Peril. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he would come over, and they would make demos on a reel to reel.
1: No way. really. Yeah. Because I know those guys are from Philly, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, but I didn't suburbs, realize Philly. Right. I didn't realize they all went like, to like Ambler there. and yeah, and shit. yeah, um, Mountain Brothers. Yeah. Yes.
0: Uh, which was based on an old Chinese legend, apparently, because mm. they were all Chinese, and. <clears throat> I had made friends with this kid from Poughkeepsie who was older than me, like two or three years older than me. I really looked up to him. He was really cool. He had a Honda Civic and a cell phone and shit. (laughs) Uh Um, And he definitely got a lot of ass. And I was like, I want to be like that guy. Skateboarding was not cool. It wouldn't take you there. So I started getting more and more into the rap thing. And then I had a falling out with Chappie, the owner of Chapman, which was then called number nine, because he gave this kid, Scott Sutherland, a pro model. Who was like 14 and I was 17. And I was like, this is bullshit. I'm just as good, if not better, than Scott. You gave him a pro model because he's a little kid. Mm -hmm. And that's like a trendy thing to do. And so we had a big blowout and a screaming match on the phone. And I took a bunch of boards from the warehouse that I wasn't supposed to. And I got kicked off the team. And so I went wholeheartedly into the rap thing. And I met this dude, Donovan from Poughkeepsie. And he had a friend back home who was a producer who made his own original beats. And he had his beat tapes. And so he gave me the beat tapes because he heard me freestyle and was like, man, you're fucking sick, man. You could be a rapper. And he was like, you should write some songs. And I was like, I can't write, though. I can only freestyle. And when I met Chops, he was like, and this other dude named Reese who was making hip-hop tracks with Chops, a a black kid. These two kids named Reese and Monk, um, black kids from North Philly. Mm -hmm. They were like, writing is everything. No one's going to remember you if you can't write a song. Right. and I was like but I'll be the first guy to freestyle a whole album and they were like no you will not <laughs> uh, um, that was not a dig at Supernatural or anybody who's ever tried yeah, it. yeah. it's just you know if you want to leave a legacy behind you have to learn to write songs and so absolutely yeah. so uh, they were the first people to impress upon me how important that was and I ended up Taking one of Donovan's friends' beats into Chops' studio and recording two song, actually two beats and recording two songs on that reel reel. So one track was my vocals, mm-hmm. the other track was the beat because right, it right. was a two track reel reel. Right. And I had to do the takes just straight through.
1: Right. So one. What, what do you mean, like a one take? Like you can fuck up, like the whole song. Right. Yeah. From start to finish. Was there a chorus? Yeah. So do the verse, chorus, verse, chorus, all in one yeah. take. <laughs> Dope. Yeah. And so I
0: did two songs like that. One was called Plain Pockets. Okay. And it was supposed to be like an everyman song. Because there wasn't a lot of rap music that spoke to my experience. Most of it was urban. Okay. You know, and I was a suburban kid. Sure. And so I did like an everyman song. It right. was like what what Kanye West finally did later and started making like everyman hip-hop. Right, right, when Before right. it got popular. Yeah.
1: No, that's very accurate. Yeah.
0: Um, and so... I did that song, and then I did another song called Here Comes the Pitch, and it was just like a battle rap show song, mm-hmm. and I only called it that because the beat that this guy made had a vocal sample in it that was actually later used on the Crooklyn Dodgers song of a guy going, here
1: comes the pitch. Oh, shit, same thing? <laughs> yeah, same exact same That's thing. That's hilarious.
0: All right. Um, and so, those two songs... Floated around for a little while mm-hmm. and I ended up making friends with a lot of people because of that and uh, naturally I had made friends with Chops Mountain Brothers ended up signing to Roughhouse when they won a contest through Mountain Dew uh-huh. to make a radio commercial that was a rat
1: I, yeah, I vaguely remember that and the yeah. prize
0: was a record deal with Roughhouse. Right. and they saw it through and they put out a few singles on Rough House right. they never made it to an album right right um, but well I remember
1: that yeah I mean their debut made uh, an impact because it was at the the, in the midst of that kind of like indie 12 inch boom I think their first mm-hmm. record, Paper Chase I think mm-hmm. that's what it was called How was it yeah um Chops very prolific producer still, I haven't still. A, yeah still right oh, oh I know okay,
0: I, I know people that he works with Oh, don't. actually that kid that called himself The Feet just sent me a demo of a song that he made with a Chops beat and I recognized it immediately and I oh, went wow. back and was like "Was this Chops oh, wow. and he's like yeah and I was like wow he still sounds like Chops <laughs> yeah it's cool he has a really trademark sound plays a lot of the stuff live and stuff. Right, yeah. right. He's he's an awesome kid, man. Um, he was a very good friend to me, and I was kind of a shitty, selfish, young, drunk mm-hmm. when we knew each other. Um, I would really like to reconnect with him now that I'm a, a mature, responsible, honest guy. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, it might be uh, a good opportunity to do that.
0: Yeah, well, we'll see. I'm I'm in the middle of um, I'm actually in a, in in a program, so like I do the steps and all that stuff. So you feel like is that. Um, Feeling good? Yeah. Oh my God, it has revolutionized my life. Cool. Um, but before I get off track here, so um, I made friends with some other people who rapped, and I got into student radio, and that's where I discovered indie rap right. for the first time. There was a DJ at Penn State called Mike Jacks, who was a white guy whose real name was Michael Jackson. <laughs> I know, I love it. Uh, yeah. And um, he showed me my first Company Flow record, and that was it. It was a motherfucking rap. Yeah. I, I was so hooked on how avant-garde and kooky these things were. Right. And when I found out that LP was a white guy, I was like, what? Right. Because there wasn't a lot of that back then. You had Milk Bone, and you had Third Base Yeah, and Beastie Boys, but it was not a very common thing. Right. Um And certainly not to make records without constantly talking about that you're a white guy that was True. so common with early white rappers right, right. and it's a little unfair for them because they were trailblazers so I think they felt it necessary to dress the elephant in the room mm-hmm. and they would mm-hmm. make songs that specifically talked about that subject which made their stuff kind of overly self-aware and cheesy yeah and interesting yeah it's an interesting, interesting point. point and so When I came across Company Flow and Jedi Mind Tricks' early records, I was like, Wow, these guys are white? These things are fucking crazy. They're so kooky and weird. Like, the early Jedi Mind Tricks stuff was very strange.
1: Oh, like the amber probe. The amber stuff. probe
0: and the psychosocial, biological, chemical and <laughs> electromagnetic <laughs> manipulation of human consciousness. Is
1: that the Wow, I got
0: it. That's it. it. Yes. That's it. You yes. kidding, man. Oh.
1: I don't think I've ever said that out loud. Yeah. I remember seeing it when it came out, being like, I, I know these guys didn't just make that the title of their record, you know yeah,
0: it was obnoxious. But, but they the were on some they were on some way was out. was very street. strange. Right. It was a lot of street corner religion philosophy. Yes. Like holy tabernacleism right. and like, really, really far-extreme 5% Nation references. Mm-hmm. Um, and stuff about, like, the hale comet and and the spaceship Nibiru that's hiding behind it. It was really out-there <laughs> stuff. Yeah. But it was so innovative and interesting in that regard. And then it had sure. beats that kind of sounded like an even spookier, more esoteric, weirder version of RZA stuff. Uh, yeah, which yeah. is not surprising Because Stoop actually used the ASR To produce As did yeah, the, on his really. early stuff yeah. So it had a really distinct sound yeah. These are things I didn't understand back then Like mm-hmm. the nuance of how these different Machines affected the sound Of the songs that we love right. so much I learned that later As I became um, A tried and true experienced rapper a musician
1: well and eventually as a even you know a producer of your own stuff yes yourself exactly so i up. i came to learn about these things right um but yeah because you would end up working with those with and matrix quite a bit for right. uh, over a period of time i would go so far as to say that
0: the two people who started my rap career and we have arrived at that point in this story Dope. were l fudge okay who was on raucous at the time yes um, he had a single called Liquid back with uh, What If. A great song. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was a very popular record in the moment. It was a super popular record. Yeah. And people thought, and Rockus thought, that they were going to be able to pull off with him and Shabam Sadiq what they did with Mo and Kwali. Right. And they were pressuring those two to make a group together. But, oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. they wanted to make a Black Star style group out of them, but they were both really resistant to it because right. they wanted to be big solo artists. And Fudge was such an irresponsible young Dominican kid that he squandered the opportunity and they gave him a big advance to make a record and they were going to hire the Roots to do one of the beats for it and he bought a motorcycle instead. (laughs) And then his friend crashed it. No. Yeah, and then he bought another one with the rest of the advance. And did not record a single. No. Yeah,
1: that's too bad. That's what
0: he told me. I, right. I don't really know now. Right. He was a young kid, it's, sure, you know, and there was really no checks and balances like watching to see what he would do with the money. Um, right. And so it wasn't a lot of money, but it was like twenty grand or something. And it's a lot of money. He sure. spent both of it, yeah, for a
1: single back then. I'm saying. I mean, that's unheard of now.
0: So. Yeah. Well, you went when Uncle Rupert is financing your <laughs> right your right. record label. It's a little easier to get away with shit like that. True. Anyway. Uh, So, Student Radio introduced me to that stuff, and I had ended up meeting this duo of kids that called themselves the Tommyknockers, one kid from suburban Philadelphia, one kid from Jersey, two young black kids, Patrice and Jarrett, who had a young prodigy DJ named JJ. Ah. Um, Enter JJ Brown. Named JJ, who uh, was doing scratches and stuff for them. JJ produced... But Jarrett and Patrice wouldn't let JJ do anything because he was better than them, and, okay. <laughs> and so they they kept that a secret. Right. Um, and <clears throat> I ended up recording a demo song with them called Logistics One Hundred and One that had the break from Impeach the Prez on it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Classic.
0: That, that fucking everybody has used. Right. Right. And you know that boom, boom, with that. That opening of I had. Of yeah.
1: So good. It's, I mean, it's who couldn't gold? rap over that? Yeah. You know? like, it's hip hop gold, man. Yeah. So I did a
0: song. I came up with the name Lewis Logic. The thinking was I wanted the rap name to have my real name in it so people wouldn't call me by some other name that's not right. mine because that felt awkward. Um, and then I wanted the rest of it to sound like it could be my real last name. And then I loved the alliteration. And the only thing I could think of that began with an L that wasn't. Um, like a negative attribute, like Lewis Lazy, Lewis Loser. Like all the words I was coming up with were bad. And I was right. like, Lewis Logic, that's cool. And so I thought, in my mind, I was like, it's like Reggie Noble. It's, it sounds like a real name. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. That was what I was negative. thinking when I came up with it. Right. Years later, I was like, I hate my rap name. I can't believe <laughs> I did this to myself. <laughs> and, you know, I made records that were really cartoonish and zany. Um, right. And very illogical. So it was a very ironic. Name. One, yes, one might say. Sure. You know? And and so to that end it became a misnomer, like a bald guy named Curly uh-huh. for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, that was like an afterthought. I didn't plan that. It just kinda happened that right. way. Right. Um, so I recorded this song called Logistics one oh one and it was actually pretty fucking good. Like it holds up even now. And I had friends who were hosts on the student radio station there jam 91 and they had l fudge on for a show and i had his record and stuff Mm -hmm. and because i had all the raucous shit and they played him my song during the break while they were playing songs over the air for the listeners okay they played him my logistics 101 song over the phone oh shit and he was like wow this kid's dope he was like, yo, I, I could help him, you know, I could help him, like, get a record out. Right. And they were like, you would do that? I wasn't even there. Right.
1: Um,
0: this is a true story. This is fucking insane. And he was like, yeah. And they were like, well, how could you help him? And he said, well, well for one thing, I could do a song with him. That would really help because I've got a name already. Right, right, right. Um, and they were like, well, how would you do that, though? You're in New York and we're here because you couldn't even email an MP3 back then. No. Um, oh, most, a lot of people didn't even have email addresses. This was so long ago. Right, right, right. Um, so he said, Well, you guys could come to Washington Heights and get me. And my friends ended their radio show right then and there and left dead air on. No. Yes. <laughs> and they got in the car and they drove from Penn State at like midnight to Washington Heights, like Whoa. four hours away. Yeah. And picked this fucking Dominican kid up <laughs> and then drove straight back to Penn State. Holy shit. And I was sleeping.
1: That's some classic hip hop shit right there. Yes.
0: Yeah. I was sleeping because well, everybody was chasing this dream of like yeah. being a part of it. Yeah. You all wanted to be a part of it. So if you saw an inn, you were gonna take it.
1: And those inns were they weren't They were few and far yes. between.
0: It was impossible to create them because you didn't have an electronic connection through no. the internet the way everyone does now.
1: Well, even just the, the year, the the, the the era of playing songs over the phone. I mean, that was a big thing. People did totally. that all the time. Yeah. Yo, check out this is my new shit. I'm gonna put the fucking phone receiver up to the tape deck. Yeah. And,
0: yeah, totally. Know. So yeah, you raise a good point. That's true. I mean, you didn't even know what your favorite artist looked like. There were no pictures oh, from anywhere. Yeah, no. Yeah, it was exactly. so cool and mysterious. Definitely. People don't know what they lost by. Opening the floodgates for artists having to share every aspect of their life publicly in order to have a following. Right. It, it was really magical back then. Well, yeah, I mean, just getting yeah. a picture of what LP looked like the first time I was like, "What? <laughs>
1: That's that dude? Oh my right. god! Right. Like, it was mortifying. Right, like, almost jarring. Well, we relied so much on our imagination. Too, yes, you know, where it was like it actually like really nurtures. These your
0: fucking kids don't know what they're missing out on, man. It was right. so thrilling yeah so it was a thrill um I was sleeping at my then girlfriend my first love my college love's place um she lived in a house full of girls and I had lost my apartment and was kind of living there with her uh uh-huh. uh cause I had graduated from school oh no wait no no I was still a student at that point and uh I just... I had moved out of an apartment because I had a crazy roommate who was schizophrenic and he almost burned the place down and I had to leave. Okay. So I just moved into her place. And... I was sleeping in bed next to her laying there in our underwear and someone just opened our bedroom door because at Penn State you didn't even lock the doors to your houses back then. Right. Um, and I look up and I see this little Indian kid like Bengali Indian um, Nabeen, who, who started going by the one Shanti and put out a few records, actually. I recall. Yeah, yeah. So he burst into my bedroom door, and he's like, Morning! And I look up, and I'm like, Bitch, what the fuck you doing in my bedroom? And he's like, I have a surprise for you. And then Fudge popped out from behind him. And I was like, who the fuck is this? <laughs> and he was like, yeah. yo, I'm L Fudge, kid. And I was like, what? And he was like, I'm L Fudge. And I was like, "L Fudge, like L Fudge, like the rapper L Fudge. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, what are you doing in my house? (laughs) And then they told me the story of what happened. And we went to this pancake house and we had breakfast and we talked about doing a song together. And then we went over to these Tommyknocker kids place and sifted through what beats they had. And then they didn't have anything that we liked. So they kind of whipped one up on the spot. Uh And um, I had, in the interim, I had recorded a third song called Punchline and we showed that one to Fudge. And he was like, this is so good. And it was it was kind of like my nod to Jay Treads' really choppy delivery. Yeah. Where you take like, lots of pauses and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and deliver the rhymes in segments. So like he, right. w- he wouldn't say a whole phrase. He would say part of it. But most of them, they've that. They've that. Like that. And he, it's he really, really staggered yeah, delivery.
1: With that Indelibles record, you could tell. he That was a, exemplified that style. Yes. Yeah, Jay Treads was... Is there really a really unique style yeah he doesn't probably get the do he the, was great man yeah. he was so
0: good so I actually ended up becoming really good friends with him over oh, the years dope. Um, and he was on my second big single on the A-side song uh, General Principle mm-hmm. um, so I had a song called Punchline where I was kind of mimicking Treads' patterns and stuff because I looked up to him I thought he was great on yeah. the Indelible Records yeah. and on the Company Flow album mm-hmm. um, so we recorded this song and Fudge was like let's call it Planet Rock and I was like no please let's not do that this is already a super famous song Right. but Fudge was such a serendipitous guy like he was like doesn't matter ours is, ours is different and so we called it Planet Rock <laughs> and then I had these three songs Right. and this is the coolest part of this story even though that sounded really nutty like how I met Fudge um, Fudge told me that he was friends with Vinny from Jedi Mind Tricks and I really looked up to those guys and um He said he met him at the annual Rocksteady celebration and that they drank together all night. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. I've always wanted to meet that guy. There was an open mic night that Bobito Garcia used to do at his store of footwork in Philadelphia on um, 3rd Street in uh, Old City. And either the first or the last Sunday of every month, they would do an open mic night, and there would be a feature act. And so one of the months, it was Jedi Mind Tricks and 7L Esoteric. And I was like, we have to go. <laughs> and we all loaded up and made the three-hour drive to Philly and went there. And I got up and I signed up for the open mic, which I was doing a lot at that time because I was trying to cut my teeth at performing live, right? which is so scary. sure. And so I would practice verses and then get ready and go up there, get to deliver one verse. Right. And every time I would get so nervous I couldn't remember my verse and I'd have to freestyle. But the cool part of that is one time I got to freestyle with uh, – a. Black Thought and um, Chuck Treese who was like a punk rock stable, yeah, playing drums,
1: dope for me. Yeah, it was In like, Philly. Yeah, oh, uh, that's what's up. And I traded verses with Black Thought. I was like, this is amazing. That's, <laughs> that's funny too with your career too. If you look at because you've done so, lots of loose joints as well as like full albums, obviously, but that you have definitely you know worked with a lot of different dudes. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I got different. to rap
0: over Quest playing drums for me before oh, cool. at that open mic. So I saw their sets. Oh, and Virtuoso was there. So it was right. Seven L Esoteric Seven L Esoteric Virtuoso and Jedi Mitrix was the headliner. Right. And they did songs from like their Army of the Pharaoh stuff too, together. And I I that stuff wasn't even out. Right. And I was just so blown away. Like they could perform, they could deliver these written verses with such enthusiasm and confidence. It it just blew me away man and i went up to vinnie after the show and i was like that was fucking incredible man you guys are so good i don't even know what to say and he was like thanks kid thanks <laughs> and, and i was like you know we have a mutual friend because so i was a pretty smart guy and i was good at social navigation and he was like oh who's that and i was like l fudge and he was like
1: what fudge is my boy
0: and then we ended up spending the entire night in rittenhouse square park Dr- drinking 40s out of paper bags and talking rap. <laughs> uh-huh. And Vinny fell in love with me on a friend level. Like, he had a friend crush on me. Right. And he gave me his beeper number. Huh. And he would like, just page me 911 anytime you want to talk. Wow! And so I would page him from Penn State. And then he would call me from his mom's because his mom had like a free long distance setup. Right. And we would talk for hours about hip hop. I had a bad breakup with that girlfriend. Um, and I had been trying to send around my three songs with El Fudge on one of them. Um, Fudge gave me the contact info for Big Daddy, which was like a tiny little. Of course I know it well. Uh, yep, yeah. uh, he gave me Big Daddy's contact information. He gave me um, who else? Some level, something, something level is like a LA company. There's a guy named Yuri. Ground level. Ground level. He gave me their info. You're good. He gave me their info um, And maybe one more um, And all three of them Offered me a deal For Fudge's thing But they sent me contracts And I did not understand What was in the contracts right, right. And I didn't have a lawyer And I couldn't afford it. a lawyer um, And I was sleeping on Chops's couch Because <laughs> right. I moved to Philly After a bad breakup In central okay. Pennsylvania And my then My, my ex she she was so angry with me over this bad breakup. And, like, I had kind of pressured her into having an abortion. I was really young. And, like, it was just scary. I was like, I can't be a fucking dad. I'm 20. Right. Right. Um, it was years earlier, but she never really forgave me for this. And she, she fucked all of my friends. <laughs> she, like, hate-fucked all of my friends. Oh, and I was like, I can't stay here. I feel like every time I shake someone's hand, I'm fucking shaking someone's hand who was fucking my girlfriend. Oh, my God. So I moved to Central, uh, to Philadelphia and okay. lived in Chops' apartment on his couch. Right. Um, until one of the other guys who lived there moved out and then I took over that room. And I stayed there like that for like five months and Vinny came over every single night and drank 40s in Chops' living room out of a paper bag and Chops hated it. (laughs) He's not a party guy. right? So he was like these fucking motherfuckers just laughing and yelling and getting drunk every night. And I didn't have a job and he was like please get a job and get the fuck out of my house. Yeah. And then I got one and I got my own place and then we moved the party over to my place. So all this time I had been trying to find a way to interpret these contracts sign one of them and get a record out. Sure. And six or seven months went by like that and I couldn't do it but I didn't want to take advantage of Vinny as a friend and be like hey will you listen to my record and like put it out so I never showed him the three songs
1: because you know he had a label right super regular and I was
0: so nervous about overstepping my bounds in our friendship I was honored that he wanted to be my friend to begin with Sure, he seemed like a a star to me and I was like "I, I can't jeopardize my friendship with him by asking for this favor. Mm -hmm. And he respects me as a rapper, but he never heard any of my written stuff because I was always freestyling. Right. Um and so I had made friends with this kid that Vinny called Sean the Jew, because he's weirdly anti Semitic. I don't get it. I'm not gonna get into the details of that. Suffice it to say that it was a truth of at least that time period. Uh, and he called this this kid Sean the Jew. I loved Sean the Jew. I thought he was an awesome kid, a really good rapper, and like just a really sweet person. Okay. So I hung out with him a lot. And Vinny would be like, oh, you're going to go hang out with Sean the Jew tonight? Blah, 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 And Sean went to school with Stoop, the producer for Jedi My right. Tricks. And they were friends. But Stoop kind of looked down on Sean and was like, "You're terrible. You're not a good rapper." Blah, blah blah. So he would never give Sean beats or anything. Once in a while, he would listen to something Sean made, but mostly he would just mock him. Stoop is not the friendliest guy of all time. Mm-hmm. His old name was Stoop, comma the enemy of mankind, right? Because he was such a grouchy guy <laughs> right, right. that Vinny gave him that nickname, <laughs> um, and it fit with their persona. Yeah. So I gave Sean a. Uh, a dub of my three songs on a cassette tape because back then even burning a cd was really hard like no one had a cd player um or burner rather um and i had met these two nerdy kids who were really into early computer technology at penn state who made before i moved to philly like five or six copies of a cdr with a printed cover a photo of me from a webcam that was all grainy <laughs> making an L shape with my hand and then like put O-U-I-S in, in Comic Sans and then and then Logic uh-huh. underneath that in Comic Sans wow classic uh, yeah it was so funny and it had my three songs on there and so I had to keep these copies for when I was sent them to record companies sure. which is how I sent the Big Daddy and Ground Level <clears throat> and there was one other one but I can't remember what it was yeah I'm, I'm curious but It might come back to me. So... um,
1: You eventually found a home.
0: Yeah. So what ended up happening... This is the coolest part of this whole story, I think. Sean the Jew gave Stoop a copy of my three songs on an old single where he put tape over the little holes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And Stoop listened to it and was like, I hate it. And then... Put the tape back over the holes and tried to record over it with beats for Vinny to write to for what was going to become the Violent By Design album. Interesting. Vinny put the tape into his car and was listening, driving around to these beats to write to, and then it would flip over and play these three songs from some guy that he didn't know, and there was a guest appearance from El Fudge on it, and he was like, wow, this is so weird. What is this stuff? It's so good. He was listening to it for months and he was hanging out with me every day and didn't know. Wow. And so I finally had gotten so frustrated with trying to find a, a pro bono lawyer. That stuff is for like crime things, not for entertainment. <laughs> no, no, not and, at all. And so no one would do it. Right. And I was telling Vinny all this and he was like, let me hear your songs. I have a record label. I'm not promising you anything, but if I like them, maybe I'll put them out. Right. And I played them for him, and he was like, "The fuck!" And he started like rapping along, and I was like, "What the fuck?" And he was like, I know these songs. (laughs) And it took forever, but we finally pieced it back together, and he found, like, the old tape and stuff. Wow, that's crazy. And so Vinny had actually already heard my songs and was a fan of them and had been
1: hanging out with me for, like, five or six months and (laughs) didn't know I was the same guy. That's amazing. That's another (laughs) thing where there's no, you know, not not everyone having, like, a website and social media and stuff. It just takes that long to put the puzzle together.
0: Yeah. And so that night he was like, I want to put your record out on super regular. We're going to do a handshake deal. No contracts or anything. I will give you 50% of whatever we make back after profit. And I was like, let's do this. Right. And I put out my first two singles that way. And he put me on the Violent by Design album on two songs. And it changed my fucking life. Put you on the map. Yes, it did. <laughs> so between having that single with Al Fudge on it and having two guest appearances on the probably most beloved Jedi Mind Tricks album on some level. Right, right, Um, It made me a somebody in the underground rap world and all of a sudden everybody was hitting me up to do guest appearance work on songs and I became the biggest collabo slut ever. (laughs) Which is why I have all those outtake albums and stuff. Right, right. Because I just wanted my name out there. And so I would hit up anybody that I ever wanted to work with and be like, we should do a song together. And other people were constantly hitting me up and being like I want you on a song and this was
1: all mostly while you were living in Philly
0: yeah and so did you do a record with um, Rashid accidentally yeah yeah that was not a a choice actually my stuff well actually one of them was a choice okay because self title was helping him put something together for another guy that's
1: been a big part of your career Mm -hmm. too Shout out to self-titled, who I've known for a long time. I have his demo. I got his demo. I have his demo tape when he went by another name, which I'm not going to put him on blast. Okay, yeah, it's long ago. He asked me never. I to have say. one of his old beat tapes, right? Um, that had
0: like 60 beats on it. Dope. Um, yeah, yeah, great producer. Yeah, he was a really awesome. producer And also
1: at the time, you know, the label Bronx Science, he was a great A and R in a way. Yeah, yeah,
0: he was making that place work. Livio G or I forgot it wasn't Livio yeah, G so. Livio yeah Livio was one of the two guys I forgot the other guy's name because right. his name wasn't as interesting that's <laughs> right that's why I, yeah
1: but yeah because you did a handful of singles with them too? yes I did a couple? that was
0: because of self right um, so essentially what ended up happening after all this uh, I did the first two singles and then I didn't have any beats and Vinny was like you gotta get beats Uh, And the plan was for me to do an EP And it actually even says that on my first single From the forthcoming Um, um, EP And it it had some silly name like the Indie Rap Field Trip Or something like that I wanted (laughs) to make it cute and school school themed Right right. Um, So JJ had gotten back in touch with me Through a Penn State uh, Alum And said I got my own studio now I'm not fucking with those kids anymore and I make beats. And so I told Vinny about that, and he was like, get some beats from him. And so JJ sent me a beat CD with 25 beats on it. And I didn't like the style of his drums because he used to just use break loops. He didn't separate out the sounds and then play his own patterns the right. way Primo did and Pete Rock did. And it sounded old-fashioned to me.
1: Yeah,
0: I was like, make a hi-hat that's just quarter notes. like." It's and then go boom, kak, boom, boom, because everything that he had was like these like really elaborate break beats that were just looped,
1: right? And yeah. I didn't like
0: that. It's, it's, it sounded old fashioned, you know. Because the there's modern,
1: something very old fashioned about it.
0: Yeah, And the modern technique at that time was separate each drum sound out and then play them on an SP12 or an MPC. Yeah,
1: chop chopping them up. Yeah, exactly. Playing them and chopping.
0: Exactly. Them up. And so there was a beat on there that had a Bob James sample from the Touchdown album. Um, with a Spanish guitar break and Vinny was like this is amazing because I was like I didn't like any of the beats because of that drum thing because right. I loved Primo and Pete Rock and Diamond D and stuff and Buck Wild and yeah. Vinny was like just tell him to change the drums so I reached out to JJ and I went back to Penn State and I was like look get rid of these drums actually the drum sounds are fine just take the snare just the snare And and I kind of it sounds weird. I, I can't truly take credit for it, but it felt like I was teaching JJ how modern rap people make beats.
1: Right. Well, yeah, you add your perspective to it. You know. Yeah.
0: And so he did that mm-hmm. right then and there on the mm-hmm. spot and took some notes from me. I was like, yeah, just make the hi-hats even quarter notes. And then like I did like a drum pattern with my mouth. And then he mimicked that and was like, oh, actually, it would be improved if I did this. And he slid things around a little bit. And I was like, wow, this is dope. And that became my song "Factotum," which was right. my most popular s- single song right. of all time. It still probably is, hmm. um, just because it was like the first thing that people really identified my character—the drunken dragon, this right. this party animal indie rapper who has battle rhymes and like alcohol stories for days.
1: And, it, and the record came out at a time when people were, you know, anticipating those singles and those records, like they yeah. Were, Buying them and yeah, paying attention to them. I sold over ten thousand copies of that thing. That's so, dope. That's a lot for them. That's great. Yeah. yeah. That you know that's that that says something right now. But it did create a certain persona for you too. It did.
0: Yeah. And I went with it. You know, for a long time I was right. really about that. And um it took me many years, but we had come across self titled. Um he was being really ambitious at the time and reaching out to a lot of people and offering right. his beats and so he offered beats to me and he sent me this beat tape that had so many beats on it and it was the opposite thing of like the first time I got one of JJ's I liked like every single beat and I ended up picking two beats and uh made the song Freak Show and one other song God, my memory
1: what so, was the single where you were like with the handcuffs on it
0: oh uh, that was uh
1: when you were hanging up Upside down.
0: down. I was guilty as
1: charged. That, that was Self titled right?
0: Uh, no, that was just Bronx Science. JJ produced that okay, stuff, right, right. but it came out on Bronx Science. Right. Um, because Self and I had become such close friends that he was also helping with the business side of my career and getting right. me little opportunities and stuff. Um, and so at that time period, we all started curating the songs that ultimately became the cinematic album, right. which was my debut. I waited a long time to put out a first record and in fact was shopping Six songs As a little EP Called Mm Six-O-Matic And it was like A preview of what would be On the Cinematic album And I shopped it I got scouted Super hard by Atlantic By the same A&R Mike Karen, Who signed Trick Daddy And the Slip and Slide roster Uh huh And then I also got Super heavily scouted By Ron Lafitte Who signed Dilated Peoples to Capital
1: Interesting, okay.
0: And they were flying me out to L.A. and stuff, and everybody right. thought that I was going to be the first one out of our crew to get a major label deal. Right, right. Because I had this really cartoonish persona. Right. It was like brown version of Eminem. Right, and, right, right. And so... Um,
1: yeah, I, I remember... I sort of remember this, or remember when, you know, living at, out at the old house like us, you kind of remember you telling me this stuff, too.
0: Yeah, yeah. So... I actually shopped the Cinematic album to LP in uh-huh. his studio because I had met him a number of times over the years, and yeah. we'd become casual friends, and he really liked my records, <clears throat> and I shopped him the Cinematic, 60 EP, and he was like, this is fucking great, man. I, I'll put it out. He was like, but you're going to have to wait at, at minimum a year, maybe even closer to two. Because mm-hmm. my release schedule is that far ahead. right? Right. And I was afraid that samples that were in some of the songs would come out on other people's stuff because they were just so good. Sure. I was like, someone else is going to put out a song with the same sample, and it's going to fuck me. Right. I can't wait that long. And I was just too fired up. So I said, no, but maybe I could do a single with you. And he was like, yeah. And so he picked um, this song, Postal, that was, uh, at that time, it was produced by Insight from Boston yes great producer yeah really great producer he's a great rapper yeah he's an awesome
1: guy super slept on
0: yeah totally Uh, he's a really odd guy personality wise I've never met him
1: before but I love his production
0: very strange personality Um, and so I think that kind of worked against him in terms of the social navigation part of Mm -hmm. making a rap career get Mm -hmm. off the ground nice guy but super strange personality like a mad scientist type right um Stories about him remind me of the stories I've heard about Large Professor. Oh, yeah. interesting. Story. Okay. Like a really strange personality. Yeah, like... Um, yeah, like a mad professor. Yeah, you know? like, totally. Like, That's you know, the way Insight was. And he was always building... Mad like, scientists. Yeah, building little gadgets and stuff. Um, like his own little synth gadgets. And shit. He was a fucking so like strange hyper-creative. guy. Hyper-creative. Yeah, yeah, totally. Right. Um, so he didn't have much left for social interaction. Right. So he was a pretty strange right, guy. Right, right. Um, and then... Uh, a self-titled produced track Freak Show that was like a suburban tale about how the suburbs look pretty but they're actually a really creepy place where a lot of fucked up stuff is happening Right. beyond those white picket fences and LP was like I want these two songs and I'm going to put them out as a single and I was like you just put out a single by Yak Balls called Freak Show and he was like just change the name of the song and I was like alright I didn't really want to but I was like okay I mean to get a a record out on Death Jokes would be a big enough deal to me that I will do that Mm Mm-hmm. And then he left for a European tour that was over a month long and then another tour that was another month, month or two. By the time he came back, the conversation had gotten so cold that it just fizzled and it right, never happened. Right. Fast forward a few years later, the cinematic album came out. I was working on the follow-up Misery Loves Comedy with JJ and Rhyme savers was scouting me really hard and I was out there meeting with Sadiq and playing them songs and I had been sending them songs back and forth and... Uh, he told all the people in the Fifth Element and other people on the label, like, I'm going to fucking sign this kid. And it was exciting for me. Like, it seemed like I was about to sign the Rhyme Setters. And I ran into LP and Camus in red and black in Williamsburg on North 6th.
1: Red and black? Yeah, it was an, I don't remember that it was an
0: old bar dance club on North, North 6th. 6th. Yeah, in between Berry and, and Bedford.
1: Oh, so a block away from the venue, North Six. Basically.
0: Yes, on the other side of the street, though. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's coming back to me. Um, it was like an Italian restaurant slash bar, uh, yeah. dance club. Right. Um, okay. But at the time, it was like a real hot spot for hipsters to go and hook right. up with each other and shit. So I was sitting at the bar drinking by myself, and someone tapped me on the shoulder, and I turned around, and it was Camuteo And he got in my face about self-punching cage self-beat Cage up that time and and it was yeah, at his own record release party it was, was like it? a sold out show at SOB's sponsored by High Times Magazine and shit right. and Cage could not perform because he was shook up after what happened yeah, so, so yeah. it was it was a big deal Right. Um, and there was the Weathermen crew that was all the Def Jux guys right. and some Eastern Conference guys and then there was what the Demigods, the demigods which, which is was me Self App Esoteric Rise um, so and, that and demigods is like some guy, some Boston guys some New York yeah, guys yeah exactly right? but we were pitted against each other by the online community right people were like who's better whether board trolls basically, yes right? exactly and it got so serious that self ended up beating Cage up
1: mm. Mm-mm, which is mm.
0: ridiculous
1: yeah that's not necessary it, it was a
0: poor choice right and Camu tapped me on the shoulder and was like what the fuck what's your role in all this and I was like well maybe you're not paying attention but I've not been involved in any of this I don't <laughs> yes. give a shit and I don't care and I really don't want to get beat up by a giant black guy right now because he was big as shit right right um, and then you're L- also
1: pretty non-confrontational I'm just guy just
0: not that Aww. guy um, I've had my fair share of fistfights but I hate doing it and I'm mm-hmm. not that good at it and LP came up and was like Moo leave him alone and told him to go sit down And I mean I guess he knew which side his bread was buttered Because he went and sat down mm. Okay, Alright So LP told Camus to leave me alone And he did And he sat down with me and was like So what's going on with you I saw that your cinematic album came out And it did really well And I was like oh And he was like I pulled your scan numbers, and I was like, why did you do that? I was like, it's kind of a weird thing to tell somebody. And he's right. like, I'm a, a businessman, you know, and I'm interested in you. And I was like, oh, you're interested in me? You want to put out one of my records? One of your guys just threatened to beat me up. I was like, how would that work? And right. he was like, all right, just hear me out. He was like, I watched what you did with that record, and it was impressive. You You made a lot of noise, man, and did quite well, even sales-wise with really no help on an imprint no one's ever heard of. Um, Which was what, Solid? Solid, yeah. through through Caroline. And he was like, I was impressed by by both the album and its performance, and I want to know what you're going to do next. And I was like, well, I'm going to make another record. And he's like, yeah, well, with who and where? And I was like, are you offering me a record deal? You know that I want to sign with you. I wanted that for the cinematic album. And he's like, we're not going to talk about that because blah, blah, blah. And I was like, fine. No, no, you're right how could this work man I, just imagine me in a tour van with Cage and this guy like ice grilling me right. all day long you know or maybe beating me up just imagine my own supporters the people that you would want to buy my record and then to build on as an audience being like you fucking traitor right. you left the demigods to go to the weatherman how would that look I'm sorry man I know it it sounds silly but I just don't think it's the right thing to do and I was raised really old school Italian loyalty is important to me I can't do it man and he was like I knew you were going to say that I just wanted to see where your head was at and I honestly think and he said something to this effect but not these exact words and it kind of it stuck with me it hurt my feelings a little bit but I was like he's not wrong he was like you're making a decision with your heart Not your head This is like a boy decision Make a man decision It's good business Mm -hmm. And it was good business And I shouldn't have said no I did it out of loyalty to self Who has stayed a good friend to me But he would have stayed my friend He would have just been like I can't believe you did this This is like fucking professional wrestling He (laughs) jumped a lot lot like that that. So He said fine We'll stop talking about this LP I mean And then Was like Hey, you ever had a shot of that before? And pointed up to some weird bottle at the bar And I was like, no And he was like, get him a shot of that I had one of those And like he liked to drink too really? um, And he was like, what about that? You ever had that before? And I was like, nope And he was like, get him another shot of that And he proceeded to spend like $120 on me In like a half hour
1: Were, were you guys both drinking together? Yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, right. um, And I got so fucked up that he was like you have to go home I'm sending you home mm. and he put me in a cab and gave the cab driver 20 bucks and was like take him home and wow. I guess I was somewhere in Queens because at the time I lived in Woodside and I told the driver that but I couldn't remember my address and where to go because I was so fucked up wow. and we were I, I, I uh, <laughs> so embarrassing I started retching in the back of the car Mm. and he skidded over to the side of the road at a gas station and was like, get out! And I was like, get out, get out, get out! And I I jumped out of the cab and he skidded away and I was like, fuck, where am I? And I looked around and I didn't see shit. It was like a desolate gas station Mm -hmm. in the middle of fucking nowhere. Right. And I started walking and I was so fucked up that I was just staggering, like weaving side to side, meandering, proper meandering. Yes. And I fell. Mm. And my instincts and wits were so slow cuz I was so fucked up that I didn't put my hands down and my face hit the ground. And I felt a crunch. And it turns out that I actually chipped my front teeth mm-hmm. when I fell and I just lay there for a few minutes. And I started crying because it it really hurt. Yeah, sounds like it. It was terrible. I mean, you hit the concrete. Yes. Yeah. With my face, and Mm. it pushed my two front teeth together, and a little splinter came out in the middle of the Mm. top of them. Mm -hmm. Ouch. Yeah, and I, I threw up, and I was crying, and so I had throw up all over the front of me. Oh man and I was weeping and I was covered in blood I tore holes in both knees in my pants I broke the watch that I was wearing and I had to put it in my pocket because it didn't work anymore um, and I, this is back when I had my big afro and stuff right. and I, I really love I still love vintage clothes I'm wearing vintage clothes now and I had this big fro in these vintage clothes and I'm covered in blood and vomit and holes in my jeans and I'm like I have to get a cab home And I start going up to cab drivers pulling to the gas station and being like, Help me, help me, and they're all skidding away.
1: Oh man. Because I
0: look like a homeless person. Right. Right, right. (laughs) With my crazy hair and my old clothes and the holes of blood. And they're like, No, 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 Mm no. All of them (laughs) skidding away. So I reached into my pocket and earlier that day I had gotten an advance from Bronx Science. Really? (laughs) Yeah, a check from them for a single And I went into, I went into their branch bank and just cashed it because I was broke as fuck all the time back then, and I had like three grand in my pocket, in cash, Mm. and so I was like, I know what will get them to take me home. I'll show them that I have money. So I started running up to each one of them like, I have money, I have money, and most of them were still skidding away. Right this is like a very fuzzy recollection i have sure sure but eventually some guy took mercy on me and he ended up um he ended up trying to take me home and it was like that part in say anything where the drunk guy doesn't know where he lives and they keep driving him around (laughs) yeah he finally got me back to my place and I went up in there and I went to sleep and I get up the next morning and when I woke up I opened my eyes and I licked my upper lip and I felt all this crusty stuff and I was like oh man my nose is really running while I was sleeping and then I go to sit up and there was all this wadded up bloody money all over me oh on, my, on my chest uh-huh. and I still had a shirt on right? but I looked down and I had no pants on Okay. and no underwear
1: and bloody money yeah oh.
0: so I was Donald Ducking uh-huh. <laughs> with my wang piece and all the bits just out and I had a shirt on and just bloody money everywhere and this crusty stuff under my nose and I was like fuck like brutal hangover I and I go into the bathroom to wipe my nose off and I looked in the mirror and I saw that it wasn't snot it was a gnarly scab Mm. That went from the bottom of my septum Down to my top the, the top of my upper lip Right Just a complete Like I had a, a Hitler mustache scab mm. And I went holy shit And when I said that into the mirror I saw the dark space in my teeth mm. And it was like
1: fuck 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 <laughs> it's all, and, and it all comes back to you and but- It
0: started to come back to me And then I heard a knock at my door and I was like, "Oh fuck!" So I run and I throw on a pair of pants and I go to the door, and it's my landlord's husband, John. And he's like, "Hey, Louis," and he's a Greek guy that looked like Sylvester Stallone and Night Hawks <laughs> with, with the mustache right. and and beard and the the, the feathered hair. Right, right. And why he still had feathered hair? <laughs> yeah. What this is probably two thousand four, um, and he's like. You okay? And I was like, Yeah, um, I'm sorry, John. I, I, I was celebrating. I did like a record deal yesterday, and blah blah. blah. I'm sorry, man. What's going on? And he's like, Your leak. I'm here to fix your leak. And I was like, Oh yeah. And I was like, I'm so sorry, man. It's I, I was I had a party and stuff, and he, I was like, Everything's okay. And he was like, Oh, I know. And I was like, What do you mean you know? And he's like, You don't remember last night, do you? And I was like, No. And he was like, Oh. My boys, they find you passed out in vestibule of building. You crying. You can't get inside. You have no keys. They wake us up and get keys. Carry you inside your apartment. They try to take off your pants and leave you there in your boxer shorts. And you're not wearing underwear. (laughs) And I was like, oh, Oh no. (laughs) So that's how I ended up like that. Wow. Yeah. Um, This is one of the early indications I had that Maybe alcohol and I didn't belong together.
1: Um, yeah, I mean that's a that's a that's a hell of an experience right there. Yeah, it is. It's not a positive experience. Yeah. No,
0: no, it was a crazy story. LP called me the next day a bunch of times and was like, "Are you all right, man?" <laughs> he checked up on me mm-hmm. and self and then we're like, "Maybe they beat you up," and I was like,
1: "Nobody beat me up, man. I right. remember falling." Right. Right. So where does that? Like now, that you look back at that. I mean, obviously that was a that was a while ago. You yeah, know? It was a long time ago, and I, I still drank for a lot of years after that. Yeah, sure, but I mean now, you know, you're sober now. Mm-hmm. So, and obviously, you know, you're you, you know, we're talking about a lot of this is your past too. So yeah, but it sounds like you've been in a, you know, you've been reflecting a lot uh, by yeah, by talking. Right?
0: Yeah, well, the thing is if you're in a program of action that's designed to help you to stay sober, as I am, um, a big part of what you're doing is identifying, assessing, and addressing directly your character defects. Mm -hmm. And part of the way that you do that is to take a moral inventory of yourself and your past behavior. And you'll write out um, an alcoholism biography that details the highlights of your drinking career, when it started, all the terrible stuff that happened in between, and why it ended. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so, i spent... I'm going on nine months this month. Um, That's good. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, I'm really, really proud, and I feel better and happier than I ever have in my entire adult life. Well, you look great. Thank you. I appreciate that, man. Um, so... One of the things that they tell you in, in programs like this, and because these programs are generally anonymous, I don't want to get too specific about sure, it, of course, but, of course. Um, one of the things that is stressed to you is that you're not to wish to close the door on or forget your past, because these are valuable lessons. It's information that you can use that will help you to stay sober and to help other people when you share these stories, to stay sober and yeah. to achieve sobriety and to stay sober sober and so I spend an inordinate amount of time discussing my past and my character defects in painstaking detail as uh, brutally honestly as I can Um, and so in doing that you learn a lot about yourself and you experience true relief if you're actually working your program to its greatest end and and I saw every single part of my life improve by doing these things and it was hard I mean I, I almost lost my marriage I almost lost my house my dogs my cars my money like everything mm-hmm. over this um, and at the end of my drinking career the, the summary that I usually give of it is that I I carried a flask of Jameson a bag of cocaine and a vaporizer with me everywhere I went and I had three girlfriends and a wife and I was blacking out regularly and not knowing how I got to the places where I was mm. I would just wake up next to random strangers sometimes Well um and be like who are you and <laughs> how did I get here and I'd look around like where are the condoms where are the condoms sometimes uh-huh. not find any and know that I had I had gone there oh my gosh it was a really scary time man yeah Um, So when I got sober, I had to face all of those things. And I had a really, really hurt and angry wife who turned our house into a very modestly budgeted lemonade video. (laughs) I would come home and hear her screaming from down the block every night. Really? Yeah. Just yelling and cursing my name, blasting Beyonce records. And then I would step into the apartment and it would crunch Because there was broken glass everywhere. There was dog piss everywhere because the dogs were afraid. It was fucking terrifying, man. And my wife, she's a tiny, adorable little Filipino woman who's 5'3 and 114 pounds. She looks like a cartoon character that's alive. It's really jarring to see somebody who looks like that being super hostile and aggressive. Like in the way that it is when a relative who never curses, curses.
1: Right, or like when you said, like when you, you saw your father break down yeah, too, it's exactly. like exactly Same kind of thing. Something you never... It was remember. horrifying. Right. Um, it, it really felt like being in a horror
0: movie or something, seeing right. this adorable little face enraged, right. screaming and like spit flying out of her mouth into my face. It was fucking terrifying, dude. Yeah. Um, um, and yeah. she's my best friend, and I almost lost her over this, and I was not promised in achieving sobriety, that it was going to save my marriage. And I was told very early on, do not do this for that reason. Do it for you. It sounds selfish, but you must be selfish because this is a life or death scenario. Alcoholism is progressive and ultimately fatal. If you keep doing this, you will die. You'll probably kill somebody else along the way because you've been driving drunk and losing your car on a regular basis, Mm. which was also true. Wow. Um, I used to use my dog walk to find the car because I had no idea where it was like all the time. Um, So yeah, I I knew that I had to do it for me. And I was just lucky that she really did love me with all of her heart and she gave me another chance. And on my 90th day of sobriety, I celebrated by surprising her with this custom bike that she was obsessed with from Tokyo Bike. Um, I bought it for her and I sent her on a, a caper It was a series of errands for me that were all fake. Mm -hmm. These are the only things that I think actually constitute lies that I've said since I got sober. Um, And it ended with her being at a lunch date with me, my bandmate from Toy Friends, Jason, and his girlfriend. We all had bikes, and she didn't. And then behind her, chained up, was this custom bike she was obsessing over. Wow. And then chained to the bike was a lockbox that had in it a key tag like we use in real estate which is what I do to make money now during a day um, and on the key tag it said will you marry me ellipses again and it had her engagement ring and wedding band on the key tag, <laughs> and she took me back now the lady c- that's how I celebrated my 90th day of sobriety well actually it was uh, 90 meetings in 90 days
1: well, that's a beautiful thing, man. Yeah. I mean, I know it's 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 no easy task whatsoever. I no. mean, I can only imagine. Um, yeah, the work is hard, but the pay is good, yeah. as they say. Well, mm-hmm. and I, I I just I really appreciate you just talking about that aspect of it. Of course, we can talk about rap shit all day long. I mean, mm-hmm. and that's fun, um, but there, you know, our real lives. We've both been through a lot of stuff. Yes, and we have. have <laughs> yeah, we've lost family members. We've We've gone through our own like personal crises, and you know we we inhabited the same building for a, lot, a lot, many years too. Mm-hmm. So to see where you've come and that you've kind of come—it's not even full circle. It's just that you've like you, you're in like a in a great place. It seems like, yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like, or how do you feel about music right now? Um. I'm
0: really invigorated musically speaking because <clears throat> a few things happened with sobriety. Um, for one, I don't have all the distractions that I had. Right. It's very time-consuming staying drunk and high and and staying in fresh sex with strangers. It's it takes a lot of time to achieve all that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So it uh, it really cut into my ability to be productive, to maintain. A house that I own and to uh, exist in a marriage and to have dogs and to be a real estate agent and to be needing to keep that lifestyle up yeah. didn't leave much time for music. Right. I rarely wrote new music. and I started a project while I was still out there drinking called Toy Friend with a Minneapolis rapper-producer named Isid. Um, <clears throat> we had befriended each other on tour and realized we were both indie rap guys who loved indie rock and singer songwriters and electronic pop, stuff like that. Right. Um, hipster shit. And uh, we bonded over it. And so he asked me to do a little keyboard playing and singing because he knew I really wanted to phase my way out of rap on one of his albums. And I did that, and we sounded so good together. I was like, hey, you should send me a beat sometime, and I'll make something to it. And he did, and it sat there for like three or four months, and I didn't touch it. And then I was going through a real estate slump, and it was December. It was cold, and I was kind of depressed. And I had bought this General Electric toy keyboard from like the early 60s, or maybe even the early 70s, um, on eBay Mm -hmm. that I, I saw once when I was on tour in copyright's decrepit house that he got from his grandmother when she died there was a hole that you could see the sky through in the the kitchen of the place it was ready for condemnation and so full of garbage you had to hike through it you couldn't walk through it I mean he's like a young party guy so yeah Um, and it was completely unchecked (laughs) But he had this cool old General Electric keyboard and I was like, I gotta find one of these. So I took a picture of it and then I went on a hunt for it, found it on eBay, bought it. It and the beat that my friend Jason sent to me, Esid, had been sitting there for months. And then when I was in like a kind of a slump emotionally, I was like, I'm gonna try making something to that beat. And I sent him about a minute and a half of music with like a A B part verse and then like a little bridge. And he texted me back, holy fuck, in all caps. And I was like, you really like it? And he was like, dude, this is fucking amazing. It sounds like fucking like our version of Postal Service or something. And mm. I was like, that's exactly what I wanted. Uh, and he was like, please finish it. So I worked on it. And it took me two years, but I wrote a six-song EP through the worst of my drinking and philandering. And a lot of it was actually about... A couple of specific relationships that I had on the outside of my marriage. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I did two covers of the 80s songs that I liked. One that I thought would be really funny because it's a, a really strange interpretation of like the most macho cock rock fight song of all time. So I turned You're the Best from the Karate Kid into an acapella ballad a la Brian Wilson
1: that's the closer yeah it's so
0: thanks it, it was a really funny idea I
1: thought I didn't I, when I listened to it I, I thought Brian Wilson but I didn't I didn't register that that was the song yeah from the original soundtrack yeah that's it's
0: everything in it is the same chord structure and arrangement and lyrics oh. from the original karate Kid song you're the oh, best <laughs> yeah
1: Siberia is my song my
0: joint oh nice um, so that's the one I made first with that little General Electric oh, keyboard, cool. yeah. So when I heard it back for the first time in its entirety, I was like, I think this is authentic, man. Like this could come out. This would stand alongside any of the current like indie rock, right. like electronic pop singer songwriter stuff that's out there. And that was always a big fear of mine because I didn't grow up playing instruments or singing. Um, I didn't start taking piano and voice till I was thirty-two, and I always thought that people would not take me seriously if I tried to make a project that was not rap. And so this has been a really scary but um, a a brave moment for me to finally finish this thing and put it out there. Yeah. And now that that EP is out there, and we put it out in December, so I had been sober at that point since May. Um, It was a huge victory for me to share this stuff. And there's so much in those songs that is about the darkest parts of my alcoholism, inadvertently right. Um, more so about the infidelity though and then uh, to finally get grounded enough in sobriety to be able to start working on music again and I wrote in a span of about a m- month and a half, two months two finished songs and two other songs that I've made decent headway on in less than two full months that's like a 300% increase in productivity mm-hmm. for me. Right. So I love sobriety. It's been incredible. And naturally, as I've always done, the new stuff I'm making, even though it is for Toy Friend, it's different from the stuff that I made on the EP, which sounds very reminiscent of like an Elliot Smithy singing style. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually making stuff now that I would say it's like my attempt at like a croony Bill Withers style. Um, hmm. it's, it's Motown soul. Which I never did before, right? Yeah, because um,
1: I saw I you I know, did one song on that EP that had a little hint of that, right? And from when when I was living at the house too, I I saw the kind of the trajectory of of the post rap into the like you know early phase of singing, you know, yeah, sport yeah. kills. Yeah, and, I had the
0: sport kills Danish band, the like surf rap, and then my like yeah. Kiss Her Stupid project. Kiss Her Stupid, right? Yeah. That yeah. was my first attempt to make electronic
1: indie pop. Right, so it's evolving. Like, yeah. and you're obviously in a place in your life where you're you're fully evolving out of like a, your past in a way. Yes,
0: I, I am. I don't have any intention to go back to making rap records, but I refuse to ever retire because I don't know what I'm going to want to do. Of course. And the running joke is that my my Lewis Logic follow up to my last one, Look on the Blight Side from 2013, is going to happen on my 50th birthday. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, that would be pretty funny, actually. If yeah, I, I'm if with I, that. If I really did that, yeah, that would be. Why not, man? I I don't know what I'm gonna do. All I can say is I think retirement is a poor idea because if things go to plan, I'm gonna be here for a while, and I might want to make a rap record again. So why would I deny myself that for what the spectacle of it? So that everyone can hear that. Loose logic said publicly he retired. So embarrassing. No one gives a shit. Right. Right.
1: And I mean. There, you can revisit that art form, and it was t- a totally different kind of person, and it can yeah. be a very different thing. It's not the same guy that made Alcoholism the album. You know no, not at all. Exactly. You know, it's not. It's not even you know the you know uh, really the same person from misery. You know, um, misery loves company. Yeah, comedy. Comedy. Yeah,
0: Yeah. I could tell you were like it's one of those two. Yeah, <laughs> uh,
1: I break that one. Uh, no, nah, it's all good. No, uh, and no, and I just you know I know that you're working on yourself too, so that's commendable, man. And it, and it takes a lot of work, you know. And it's it's ve- it's very fulfilling work, though. It's rewarding.
0: Yeah. Um, I won't say that it's been easy to get sober. Staying sober has been a little easier than getting sober, mm-hmm. and. Um, ...doing the actual work of addressing the character defects and stuff... ...and cleaning up the messes I left behind... ...that stuff is not easy. Yeah, but the phrase that you hear a lot in programs like the one I'm in... Uh, ...is... Uh, it's, ...it's really hard work, but it, the pay is good. Yeah. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. I, I've never felt so secure and happy in my entire life. But I address things that have been left unchecked for decades... I go to therapy every week and I talk about how I was adopted and those brutal experiences I had in central Pennsylvania or my dad only talking to me within the context of sports or making money in real estate Mm -hmm. because anything outside of those two things, I'm completely invisible to him. He doesn't understand him and he doesn't want to know about him. I talk about all that stuff and it helps me to be a better me and it helps me to stay sober most importantly.
1: Well, I think that people that are going to listen to this conversation, too, will definitely be, you know, excited to hear, like, your story. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that can identify with it as well. Yes,
0: I would say that's true. And that's a big part of what you do when you are in sobriety is that you're sharing your story with people so that they can identify with it. And that allows them to find the strength and the power to stay sober themselves. It's it's a, a pass it on kind of thing you want to stay sober you got to give away all the things you learned to others so right. that they can stay sober and that keeps you sober um, well i'm proud of you man thank you man i really appreciate it um i'm really happy to, to see you it's been a long time me too maybe i will see you again because i'm going to do my first ever live presentation of toy friend at the end of march on, oh, cool. um, on the 29th i'm opening for chesky moody black and andre osborne um for a fake four showcase of sorts um at Brooklyn Bazaar
1: Dope, oh, I'll be there
0: Yeah, I'm pretty excited I've been rehearsing like a nut Because this is new for me Like trying to present in this style
1: we will be exciting to see you test it out man. Yeah, thanks Yeah, thank you I love you, man I love you too, buddy yeah. It's really good to be here It's great. I'm going to hug you now <laughs> <laughs> Okay Wow, man Well, I want to thank Louis For taking all that time Being as open as he was uh, It was... Powerful, moving conversation, and I'm glad I could share that with you guys. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you're a fan of his music, then I think you could really get some uh, extreme context insight to him. And hopefully, if this is your first time ever peeping him out, that's a it's a good opportunity to kind of learn a little bit more. If not, going back in the back catalog, peep out the new the new new that he just put out. and you can find it on Bandcamp, of course, like I mentioned in the intro. And I'm going to play a song off that right now called Siberia. This is the Houseless Podcast. I do it every week. My name is Peter Agas. I'm the host and the producer of the show. CJ Stewart is my editor. Um, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Please subscribe. Please uh, pass this along to the homies. Uh, if they um, are fans, if they like stuff like this if they're, hey, someone come up to you being like hey man, uh, I've been wanting to find a new podcast. You got any suggestions? Oh yeah, The House List by Peter Agostin. It's this homespun casual conversation thing with this guy who records all these things on his handheld mic and it sounds like it's actually in a big recording studio. You should check it out. Uh, that I would appreciate. So, once again, good looking out. Thanks so much let's peep up this little snippet it's called siberia from lewis shout out to lewis thank you so much man for taking the time and i guess i'll catch you guys on the next episode peace y'all